Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is not here today. Actually, none of us were supposed to be here today, but then we got the call that Matt Nathanson was going to be in town. So I called up TK. I called up Alabama. I called up Danny Unknown and Professor Sean and Jordan No More. And uh, they all said, heck yeah, this is a hell yes. Let's have a conversation with Matt Nathanson today. His new album is out right now. It is called Boston Accent. Matt, thanks for being here, brother. Oh my God. That, thanks for having me and for showing up. This is great. I'll tell you what, man. I, we do the segment. We're going to answer a bunch of listener questions. But we do the segment first. I wanted to dive right into your album. This segment is called More About Less. Usually we read an essay, an article, a tweet as a jump off point for discussion. But I thought we'd read some lyrics here. Oh. But before we do that, why don't we just dive into the album a bit? The new album is called Boston Accent. And to me, we were just talking about this a little bit on the way up here. To me, it's a departure from your previous work. It's definitively still Matt Nathanson, but it's appreciably different from previous albums. Yeah, I, I feel that. When you say that, what, do you, what does it feel like to you from a different standpoint? Or is this my more? I'll go more, but I want to know what you mean when you hear it. Uh, what makes you feel like it's different? I think we can start with the album cover even. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so the album cover is brilliant, not just because it's a picture of you and you're really handsome. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there's, it's almost, uh, you took a picture of you on a TV, it looks like. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there's something there. Um, there's... Your album covers are always really intentional and they're really different. I mean, you go back to your 2007 album, Some Mad Hope, and I know there's a whole story behind that album cover. Yeah. But every album along the way, Show Me Your Fangs with the ghosts yeah. on it, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sings His Sad Heart, they're you walking away from the camera. So I think we kind of start with, this is a departure in a way because this is the first time it's just you on the album cover, but it's not just you. There's something else there. Tell me about that. So it's... It's funny. It was almost mistake. It was like a stumble into intentional, which is how I seem to work. <laughs> Where I'll be like, I don't know. I had my friend Max, who I went to college with. I was down here during the pandemic, and I was like, Hey, do you want to? He used to shoot all all my photos, and I kind of said, Hey, do you want to come over to the hotel and shoot some stuff and see what we can use? And and he shot. Um, he shot that was one of the pictures, and I saw it on his iPad and I took a picture of it um, with my phone because I was like, oh, that's that's a dope shot. And he was taking so many of them. And I took a picture and then I kept it. And then when he was finished and he started sending me up the pictures, I don't like myself, right? Like it's a struggle. It, it's like a forever struggle to be uh, like, there's my face. Yeah. Or there's my song. You know, it's it's really a thing. And so every time he sent up a picture, I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that looks just like, no, no. And then I kept going back to the picture that I'd taken of his iPad. And uh, so much so that when we, he was trying different treatments and stuff, and I just ended up pretty much using that, using the iPhone. We kind of, we, we sort of like manufactured a version of that with the rainbow 
because I just thought it was way more interesting than my face. And at the same time, the album cover, it's called Boston Accent. And I and when I first saw it, I had to go with my gut reaction, which is really the only reaction that matters. And when I saw the picture, I was like, oh my God, I love that picture. And then give it five seconds after the fact, I was like, nah, I don't know, that's not, you know, the brain starts to arrive mm. and assassinate all the fun. Mm. And so having that moment, it was almost like I'm stealing this moment from time and, and I had it on my phone and nothing else really compared to what that moment was. It's so bananas. And so that's the beginning of the idea of Boston Accent. So m diving into more of who I am and more less of who I think I am or who I think I want to be and more of like, this is the person that I am in this moment, good or bad. It's a picture of a picture, which is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and as a metaphor for the album as well, and seeing yourself for who you are, we often talk about love on this podcast. And what does it mean to love someone? It means to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Yeah. And don't we unlove ourselves yeah. all the time? And I feel like your music quite often is about the ways in which we unlove ourselves. I'm discontented with who I am because I think I should be this way. The, that is prescribed by society or by our culture, by our peers, by advertisements, etc. I thought we'd dive into the album, though. Yeah. And uh, let's, let's start with the, the first song on the album. Professor Sean has some, some songs queued up for us. This first song is, um, I think it's a great way to start an album because it's, it's setting the tone in a very lighthearted way. It's called German Cars. I met you at a party You were looking for your car keys Rich kids and Bob Marley Yeah, they're never any fun So we drove out to the ocean Just to finally feel some motion The waves sounded like explosions And we counted everyone And you kissed like the Queen of California And it felt like I hadn't been born Matt, that line right there, the Queen of Cal, it felt like we, I hadn't been born. Yeah. You're able to capture an entire universe in a line sometimes. And that's what I absolutely love about your music. You know, the, the song itself starts off with, I met you at a party, you were looking for your car keys. Another world in that. One thing that I'll do quite often is I'll go to there's a local used bookstore uh, where I live. And my wife and I, we just go read first lines oh, yeah. of books. And I also really enjoy, because it's the entrance into something, right? It's everything. It, right. it really is. Like, mm. first lines are, a, it's a lifetime of work to figure out how to do those well. And when they're done well, in song, in book, in poetry, it's like, it's an invitation. It's also like it pulls you. It's, it's the greatest, I think that's mastery at its finest when people can do that. You know, yeah. oh, there's so many great, as a super music nerd, there's just a million lines that you get pulled in, you know, step out the front door like a ghost into the fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white. You know, like, what is happening? You know, yes. screen door slams, Mary's dress sways like a vision. She dances across the porch as the radio plays. It's like, mm. I'm, I'm there. Like, yes, you know, yeah. I want to be here. Here's and, one for you. I'd kill anyone... <laughs> Who treats you as bad as I do? Woo! That's a... Mm. 
I'm that's super flattering. That's my favorite lyric I've ever written. That's the most honest I think I've ever been in my whole life. <laughs> like uh because I've been married, you know, my wife and I've been together for 31 years and uh and and it's been a process, a learning curve, a pretty steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. And that that song was was the most honest I've ever been about the way she and I interacted at that point. That's from your album uh, Last of the Great Pretenders. Yeah. And I look at that line the way that you look at it, but then I think there's another way to interpret it because it's no longer yours once you put it out there in the world. I like it better when people interpret it. I look at myself that way. Like anyone who treats me the way that I treat me, oh, I would not want to be their friend because I beat myself up internally all the time. I batter myself in ways that no one else could even conceive of. Yep. And yet somehow I'm stuck with me. It's crazy. The amount of energy that we expend beating ourselves up, like we can go deeply into fantasy in almost every part of our lives, right? Whether it be somebody that we just met and we can create a whole fantasy about how we want to live with them and what it's like. We can imagine the apartment that we live in and where it is. Or like there's, we live in fiction. Most human beings live in fiction. And it's like what's real right now is so much more amazing and like than any of our fiction could create, you know? And, uh, and it's the idea of investing that kind of effort that you put into your fantasy, into your real life. Mm. Like, can you imagine how much you'd get paid back if you could just, cause we endlessly have energy for that. Like if you've ever had, so an example would be like, when you're doing something that if you do drugs, right? Or if you're an alcoholic or if you're having an affair, it's like you have an endless amount of energy to do those things. It's really bananas. Like you can tap a well that where you're never tired. You know, if you ever get a call from somebody and they're like, come over, you're like, yep. And you just drive, you drive through, you'd eat, bite through a wall to get to them. Do you know what I mean? Like that's just, and, and it's this funny thing where like we are reservoirs of so much power and so much energy. And we, we squander it most of the time on fiction and things that don't pay us back. What you're really talking about is appreciating the relationship you're in, which is really what the second song on this album is about. Oh, yeah. Here's a song called Pictures. When you're young, you got time. When you're old, you're built to life. In between, you're just along for the ride. Nothing's in a straight line Like the wrinkles on your eyes Try to take it one candle at a time When we turn 96 With a smile on our lips I'll have nothing left To wish Cause people paint pictures Of places like this People they daydream Of the life that that line there that's appreciating what you have realizing that other people would kill to be in the situation that i would kill to get out of <laughs> yeah mm. totally mm. yeah you're cl- trying to climb out of what you 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 visualize like you're in a well i say it all the time to my wife i'll be like i just can't believe that like i can't fix that i can't get out of this you know and then you have a moment where you can kind of align with like, oh no, this is magical. Like I'm with you in a in our house with our kid or even just here with you guys. Like I, f- I flew down and it's like, this is, we get to do this. I get to like be with you 
and like hear thoughtful, like mm. it, not only about myself, mm. but just to be able to like listen to you talk about things that resonate with me. It's like, and I don't mean to get hippie about it, but it's like, this is all we've got. This is it. And if the pandemic showed us anything, it's the idea that like we control nothing mm. and that all we've got is the, like the shower. When we're in the shower, what does the shower feel like on our neck? What do our feet feel like on the floor, you know, on the floor of the tile, you know, and it's like, that's it. Everything else is conjecture or like nostalgia. And it's like, that's, that's what, I hate to say this, but that's what like everybody does that. Why do you want to be like everyone? Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? How do we root into where we are? Pictures, that song is about, we'll dance in the sun till the warm evening comes, then we'll dance by the light of the moon. You know, it, 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 the idea of sort of saying, we're wishing for things that we've got right here. Wow, that's right. And your next song follows up. It's called Beginners. And it's really about, well, looking back fondly at the thrill of being naive, naivete, right? And the sort of magic of that naivete. Let's have a listen to that. There's a new maturity to your music that um, I don't know if it's post-pandemic. I assume you recorded most of these songs during the pandemic and wrote a lot of them. And sort of looking back... And part of that maturity removes the blame and it looks at the past in a way that appreciates it. So you, it's not saying I'm dismissive of that version of myself, but I accept that for what it was and I'm no longer there. But you're constantly sort of looking in the rear view. I remember the last time we had a podcast conversation, it was when your album uh, Sings His Sad Heart comes out. And, and that album in many ways was sort of looking in the rear view. Yeah. The way things used to be, right? Oh, yeah. And you see echoes of that here, but you see it from a, I don't know, a more mature man. How have you matured over the last few years? That's nice of you too. Um, I think the pandemic, I hate to keep going back to that, but that was such a moment of when you're handed, we're all, we were all handed our mortality essentially, right? We were all handed like, this is what we've got. And this is, you don't control it. You don't. And so I just have started to boil things down to what I, the only things I want to do in my life are like make records and be with my family and like, that's it. Like be with my friends and be with my family. And I think this happened to everybody. I, I feel like my manager, all these people are having, they're kind of rethinking the way their lives have been. And they're, and people are like quitting their jobs and deciding they don't want to do that. They might not know what they want to do, but we're in this place where everybody is like reassessing what's important to them and whether or not they come out on the plus side or not from that. It's like people are moving out of cities, moving to the country. I feel that way, but I, but I had this realization that there's nothing I want to change. Like, I just want to double down on all the stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. I can't mm. believe um, how fortunate I am to have had a career in music 
and continue to have one, you know, where people that I used to wish I was are long gone. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, it's amazing. And all I want to do is try my best. And it is an, it's like an hourly, maybe every 10 minutes I have to recalibrate, but it is a constant state of working at being in the moment. I felt it today driving over here, like, I, and a little bit of nostalgia of driving through Burbank and out, you know, to Hollywood. And I was like, I, I remember nine years ago when I did this and I just had a flash of like listening to CD in the car. I was listening to like Robin and being, having my mind blown. And, and, and I was like, I, I, did I appreciate what that was at the, when I was in it or was I in search of this next thing that like, and it was certainly that, do you know what I mean? Because you can't slow time. That's the other thing. The only way to slow time is to be in time and to take it as it shows up by the minute. Do you know what mm. I mean? It doesn't mean you don't, it doesn't mean you don't plan, right? It doesn't yeah. mean you don't like think, all right, I'm going to, I have some goals. This is what I want to be, but you know, this is how I want this thing to evolve. But it's the idea of like, if you're present in everything, time does not move any faster than time moves. Do you know what I mean? Like, but for me, it can fly by if I'm fast forwarding or if I'm in reverse, all that stuff. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. not in time. Time is in you. <laughs> yes. And it's a, a quote from our friend Rob Bell. And it's so true because yeah. when you're in that flow state, whatever you want to call it, whether you're making music or you could be just on the beach looking at the horizon, you're at this moment where it's everything. Yeah. And I think quite often your, your music is about that. And there's certain, sometimes it's about flailing to find that in a way. And I think this next song in particular is sort of a song that's about a man flailing for love. This hey, is called... Can I, can I dive in here real quick before we play yeah. the next song? I, I, I just really, really want to um, emphasize this, the beauty of this point about how we, we tend to look for peace and comfort, but we tend to get it best out of conflict. And just how that consciousness you have about living in the moment, it came as a result of crisis. Because with crisis, what makes it a crisis is you don't know when it's going to end, yeah. right? If, if you know it's going to end in 30 seconds, you can manage it. But you, it could go on forever. And so you say life may not get any better. Yep. And if it may not get any better, I might as well get on with the business of just loving what I have right now. Well, do, well that's funny. It's like life may not get any better. It's like the best it's ever been. That's the part that's so crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like even when somebody's like my, like if somebody's dying or whatever. It's like all of this, we, we put so much structure around and fear and like anticipation and control. It's like, we're all dying. So like when somebody dies, if you don't surrender to that thing and surrender to being sad about it and surrender to the beauty of it and realize that there's like a composting that's going on that you can't last forever. Yeah. And that like the idea is that we're here to sort of feed the seeds of the next thing. And like, how do you maximize your time so that when you're compost and we do it with organized religion, we create these things. And again, I'm not bagging, no throwing shade at like organized religion, like I back anybody, whatever anybody needs, not into the oppressive part of it, obviously, but like I, I back what anybody needs to do what they have to do. But the fact of the matter is, is we're just making stories up so that when we die, we feel like we lived. And it's like, what the, f like, just live. That's the story. That's yeah. the thing. It's rad. I just peed. My, I like literally water that I drank <laughs> went through my body and out my penis into a thing that then took it into the city sewer. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> Why wouldn't I be psyched about that? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that there's something out there that thinks you're delicious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you pee. 
<laughs> like, oh man, you're just so yummy. <laughs> that's oh, how that's the universe the is responding to you. Oh my God. Something somebody thinks you're delicious should be the name of some sort of autobiography for you. I think it's great. Somebody thinks I'm delicious out there. That's great. <laughs> When I pee. <laughs> yeah, in, in parentheses, when I pee. Speaking of urination, <laughs> here's a song. <laughs> it's called Pigeons. You're in a black dress, Bowie in the kitchen, pigeons on your balcony. Beautiful and barefoot, said you never show your bruises. I was hoping that you might show me Ooh. I've been living in a lifeboat Dizzy on the ocean I couldn't tell you when I last saw land Matt, that line. This is why you are one of our great songwriters. Just one of our great writers. You're the best. I, I, whew. Great. I, hard for me to take compliments, but from you, the way you say it, I believe it in the best way. It's like the greatest feeling. I've been living on a lifeboat. This is exactly what you were talking about a moment ago. We are flailing for something and, and we're just holding on. I, I need to hold on. Talk about clinging. Yeah. And it makes sense to cling if you're on a lifeboat, but that's what we continue to cling even though that lifeboat is now on shore, right? Yep. Although here we are saying, I... Uh, I couldn't tell you when I last saw land. Talk to me about that, mm. that sentiment. So that, I think that song is about my mom, <laughs> which is crazy. And I've never like said this kind of stuff, but she, she died, so she's not going to get pissed, you know? Uh, it's like, um, I think the idea of like a cult leader, right? Somebody who sort of takes people who are, and my mother, there was no nefarious. She was not like a, but she had been damaged, right? And the idea of, um, for her, she just passed that damage on. And that was the way that she knew how relationships worked. Mm. And it's like, you know, I couldn't tell you when I last saw land. It's like, we're so eager to have somebody be our parent, <laughs> right? Whether it be the president or the, you know what I mean? We're so looking for somebody to tell us how things should go. And sometimes that works out really well right? Because if the person has a moral compass that is in alignment with like not duping people and that kind of stuff, like I back it, I back finding somebody who can do that. But when you, but, but if somebody's smart enough and just broken enough to be able to use that power, it's like Star Wars, essentially, you can use the power for good, or you can use it for not good. And pigeons is about somebody who doesn't use it for good. They don't even know they're not doing it. They're just interpreting the world through a cracked lens, essentially. There's a line toward the end of the song. You talk about the person. You're a goddess when you get what you wanted. When you don't, you're mean. Oh, yeah. Ooh, uh, yeah. And isn't that true with most of us, right? Our love becomes conditional love. I'll be nice to you as, as long as I get what I want. As soon as I don't, as soon as you don't meet my expectations, TK, then I'm going to be a tyrant. As soon as you deviate from the character I have pegged you as yes. in the novel I'm writing, right? The fiction novel I'm writing. You're a character in my play. I'm the star of this play. And if you step out of that role and say, I'm going to be the star of my own story, 
we got a problem. So both of you have said something that's fascinating, right? Which is the idea that most people are just finding people to stuff in roles mm. for this thing that they, this script that they've written, myself included. You, I mean, you, it's the idea that you meet someone and you don't see them for who they are, but you see them for what they can be to you. And then you go about sort of um, lopping off parts that don't really work. And then you go about stuffing them and in, into this role and you go about not seeing them. And this is how everybody seems to, this seems to be the currency of humanity in these days. Right. And I'm not sure why. And again, I'm just as guilty as everybody, but it's like the more you can be real in the moment and see what you're getting, people show you who they are in the first few minutes of the, like of your interaction. And it's like, and and if, if we don't use each other as resources, we just use each, we just get, get that sort of that energy exchange. Yeah. Then it's like, it's, it gets really good. When anytime yeah. you start putting fiction in expectations, which lead to disappointment, which mm. is what we've got in a, not to get all macro, but like as a culture, this is where most people, where racism comes from, where there's a disappointment that somebody didn't get to where they thought they deserved to get and they need to find somebody to blame for the thing. I'm talking to you about racism is fascinating. But I'm saying like, but, you know, sex and misogyny, anything that's like the basis of the darkest parts of the way we work, I feel like, as this is only my interpretation, that it comes from disappointment based on expectations that were unmet. How, what's your thought on that? Yeah, like I, I love that, man. And, and, I, and I think part of th this goes back to what you said earlier about how we're all creating fiction. We're all telling stories. Part of being real is embracing the inescapability of our biases, of our human tendency mm -hmm. to weave stories and saying, I'm not going to mistake that map for the territory, Woo! right? It, it's, it's about recognizing, you know, like, like a game, for instance, ceases to be fun when you forget that it's a game. Yeah. But as long as you can be honest with yourself and say, this is a game and I take it lightly and it's something that's completely made up, all the constraints, all the goals, it's complete fiction, I totally made up, then the game becomes awesome and it brings us together. But it's when we forget that what was meant to be an expression of our creativity becomes this force that constrains us. Matt, you end the song with this yeah. beautiful line about the queen of chaos. You said you came on like the queen of chaos. And which is a refrain throughout the song, but the last time you say, but I never met anybody less free. Oh, yeah. Mm. And the expectations that cause the chaos become our own prison. My expectations of you become the prison bars for me. Yes. And even more so, my expectations of myself and who I, who I want to be and who I think I am there's for the person that I wrote that about, there was this idea that like, um, they subscribe to these roles, subscribing to roles, which is how we work, right. In order to sort of put people in boxes to understand what's going on in the chaos. It's like th this person, you know, says I'm a punk rocker or I'm a dominatrix or I'm what, you know, whatever it is, right. They sort of have these mm. things and it's like, those just become traps it's like your identity mm. has to be, what was the idea was um, who you are and your ideas can't become identity. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? They just can't. So good. The identity has to be who you are in the moment of who, you know, it, it, it's difficult because we want so badly to have, and this is something in my life. I've tried very hard to not be labeled because in being labeled, I can easily be thrown away, right? That's been my whole trip in my life. How do I sort of 
bob and weave as best I can. I'm a singer-songwriter, but I don't want to be a singer. Uh, I'm this, but I don't. And it's cost me my career probably on a certain level if I'd been able to find a lane mm -hmm. and pick a lane and be a... Uh, but instead, I was sort of mm. honest and dedicated to who I who I was at the time, I love Slayer and I love Tracy Chapman and I love, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, how do I make all this work? And it doesn't, you know, okay. so anyway, long story short, it's really easy to find titles and things that can hook you in because that makes you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, but it's, I think that's kind of a prison on a certain level, like, yeah. um, again, loose term prison, but the idea, I think it's like this person that I knew identified so hard with all these things. And it was like, and I've never met anybody less free than you. Like you're shackled mm -hmm. to these crazy ideas of who you should be mm -hmm. or who, what your uniform should be or what your mask should look like or how you should interact. And I spend my whole life. That's the one thing I think I've done well is <laughs> yeah. like, I really, I, I, I just have a, I have an aversion, like a physical aversion to being anything other than who I am in the time that I'm there. It's like, and it's cost me many things. And at the same time, I feel here I am, you know what I mean? Still moving forward. Freedom's expensive. I feel like you talk about this really well, how like something like being a writer and how we get caught up in these identity prisons. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you speak really well about how the prison doesn't even have to be bad. You can be caught in a prison of noble sounding ideas. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a really well-decorated prison cell. Totally. Mm. And yet you're still trapped there, right? Mm. Let's move on to a song called, well, this is the title track to the album. Oh, yeah. Speaking of prisons and trying to move on and trying to hide our personality, our identity. Totally. Right? In fact, the word person, the etymology of the word person just means mask. And so we're all wearing these masks. That's what your personality is. This is a song called Boston Accent. I was born 3,000 miles from where I came alive. And I left without saying a word to start a new life. But sometimes in some random bar, it'll cut through the noise. Like a breeze in the summer heat. Like an old friend's voice A Boston accent Well, my brother, he got kicked out of school Yeah, my mom threw him out And my sister, she lives three streets over Two houses down And my father is buried in town By his father's side and me, I spent my whole damn life just trying to hide a Boston accent. Moving through the crowd on that first night, lit like angels by the sitcom. Let's talk about that opening line real quick, Matt. I was born 3,000 miles from where I came alive. I think, Ooh. yeah, there's a whole world in that, because, but I resonate with it too, you know? And, uh, but I also resonate with the roots and also going back to the roots and, and even the word roots can mean, we can think of roots as a good thing from the place from which we grow, or it's keeping me there, unable to go wherever I want to go, right? Yeah. I'm rooted, I'm anchored is another way to look at that. But that's really what this song is about. It's at least to me about dealing with the, the shame 
of some sort of past. Yeah. We were talking about this before, you know, I come, I come from Boston, outside of Boston, New England, boarding school, not rich, but boarding school. Mm -hmm. And like, I tried so hard to not be any of those things. (laughs) Like I just, I came to California when I was a kid in college and I didn't look back and I've never identified with Boston as a, I've tried very hard to not identify. I wrote a whole record that last of the great pretenders record is about San Francisco, right? Like that yeah. was my home. Like, and it is, it's my home. It's where I've lived and what I love, but you've lived there most of your life. Yeah. At this point, but I have this thing that happens that every time I hear even the hint of a Boston accent or it could be Maine, but New England, but really it's Boston. Anytime I hear the hint of it, I get so unbelievably connected to the person talking about it. It's like unreal. Like I feel that it could be a serial killer talking to me in a Boston accent. And I'd be like, come here, friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's the craziest thing. Mm. And, uh, and I never wanted to admit it. I, I kept running from that idea. And then finally, I just sort of, you know, because I got, I got as far away from my family and my home as I could, you know, that thing. And yeah. I came here and I found my, the, someone who showed me unconditional love. And I, I found a city that I feel connected in in Massachusetts. You know, you get the shit kicked out of you for just walking down the, you know what I mean? Like it's a different animal, you know what I mean? And like you get, you get picked on like Boston, like we were talking about it. There's just an element of like, everybody's in everybody's business. And like I, when I was a kid, I had a nose ring and a chain to my ear. And I remember some guy just walked up to me in the street. He was like, I'm going to, what if I flushed you like a toilet, like an old school, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> or I was wearing a cop jacket that I'd gotten at this, like, and no flies. I mean, I love Massachusetts. Like I did, I've learned to just feel, but I would wear like this cop jacket that I got at this used clothing store. And somebody just comes up to me and like, you don't deserve to wear those. Co-. And I'm just like, what? And that's what I grew up in, in this environment where I felt constantly watched and constantly like judged and constantly. And so I was like, get me out of here. And then you realize that that's who you are actually, which is something you have to untangle. But the idea is I also find an incredible comfort in hearing people talk about, and when I go back to Boston, I just feel good about it. I, you can meet a stranger and be like, wait, where are you from? They'll be like, Weymouth. And you'll be like, oh my God. You know, and then all of a sudden it just starts. I had it the other night with somebody whose wife was from New Hampshire. And like, we just talked like we'd been best friends. And that's, that's such a crazy concept. Yeah. Like I'm your best friend because you have an, because you grew up where I grew up. What a dumb, but it's this weird mystical thing yeah. that I still surrender to in a weird way. And so I wrote that song about it. What's the line about your sister getting married in June, but you might not go? Oh, yeah. What is that about? So it's sort of, the song is sort of fiction, but it's not really fiction, which is the best part of the way way it works. My sister's getting married in June, but I don't think I'll go. It's like, um, I mean, it's true. (laughs) The idea that family for me... um, isn't really, we just weren't a family. Like we, we, and so that's the idea that the most intimate moment, like my sister's getting married where everybody normally would be like, yeah, I don't subscribe to the marriage thing. I don't subscribe to the family thing. I said it to my family. I've said it to my parents. I don't, you, I don't owe you, this sounds sort of, but I've said to them in, in the heat of moments of like, I don't owe you anything. Right. Like you did this to me. Like, this is your doing. Like, you picked a job and then you did it either well or not well. But like, don't think, you're. I'm not your recruit. 
I'm not mm. your friend. Like, if you want to be my friend, you have to earn it, and I will show up for you, and you will show up for me, and this is how it's going to go. But like, and I say the same thing to my kid. I say, Bubba, you you don't owe us anything. Like, M- Mama and I, we we decided we wanted to do this, and we're here to do this, and we're doing it the best we can. And it's like, and that's the idea. And fa- they really don't like that. Apparently, they don't like to hear that. Like, uh, my mom <laughs> really was pissed when I said it. But I was just like, dude, you know, if you want to meet me where I am, I'll show up, and I will show up with all of all of me. But if you think that there's some sort of strings attached to the situation because you guys didn't know how to use a condom, it's like not my problem. <laughs> like, and that's just really what it is. Like, it's like, dude, you could have looked it up. You know what I mean? The, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The idea of being family equals obligatory, mm. unconditional friendship. Mm. No, not at all. Now, you can love someone, but sometimes you have to love them from a distance because if you don't, it will crush you. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. you, I mean, so I, I, I think you don't even have to actually love them. P.S. That's my next piece. <laughs> but, but I think that, but also, but I do agree that like, so I've never had a, ch- like if my child, right, somehow becomes addicted to drugs or becomes something that I didn't think that I want, like at this point at 11, she's kind of killing it. Right. But like, I have no idea what she's going to become. And in that way, that's going to be the real test of like what unconditional love is about, which is what you're talking about. Like, how do I love her and allow her to be who she is while doing things that I just vehemently disagree with, Mm. right? And that is the thing that is the most interesting part. And I'm in, again, we're in kind of the, we're all sky at this point. She's just ruling it. I, my, you know, I have a brother who was an addict and I have a, you know, it's like, and how do you go about loving your kid when they do something that you're like, what? Because they're, they're part of you, but they're also, they're their own unit. And so that's the idea. That's unconditional love, which I'd never, I've never experienced until I met my wife, Mm -hmm. truly never in a million years, didn't even know what it was. And I fought it the whole time. Kind of like, oh, you think you love me. I'll show you what, I'll show you when you'll quit this is how it's going to work. And I just kept testing her at every point. And she's not an idiot. It wasn't like she was like, okay, I can keep going. You know, she was just like, she fought it the whole time mm. back against me and been like, no, this is what I think. And this is, and it's, but that's the idea is like, how do you, and this is what America has such a problem with. It's like, we all do as humans. It's like, how do we love somebody? How do we coexist with people who have absolutely the opposite? And this is what the internet has brought because we see that people don't think like us. Like Mm. it's clear as day. We're like, that person's an idiot. But like that person, if you fell in a hole and needed someone to like tourniquet your arm, so you didn't, or your leg, so you don't bleed to death, probably would tourniquet your leg and let you not bleed to death. Like we're not, there's not that in that song pictures, people see darkness and light as opposite sides, but you and I know they're the same. It's like, it's like if you get into a car accident, the person that jumps out of the out of the ambulance to save your life might be a, something that you is you villainize and think is the worst thing in the world and they save you because we all need to exist in this world where we don't think the same. We aren't the same. We came down different shoots. We don't even have the same definitions for the language that we use. I, you say love. I say love. You say love. It, they're totally different. Absolutely. It's crazy what we expect yeah. from people. You know, it's interesting. When I think about the word or the phrase unconditional love, what's the opposite of that? That would be conditional love, right? And so conditional love is characterized by conditions. I think the key to getting beyond conditional love is letting go of the stupid conditions that we're bringing to the relationship. What I love so much about what you said to your parents is when you look someone in the eye and you say, hey, look, I don't owe you anything. 
the magic of that is it becomes easier to love that person when you're no longer holding yourself to some kind of condition that says, I've got to like my parents no matter how they act, right? If you and I are buddies, if we believe that we have to live in the same apartment, Mm -hmm. we're going to have a little more difficult time loving each other. But the moment we let go of that condition and say, hey, we don't have to like each other all the time in order to respect each other. We don't have to live together in order to be good friends. When we let go of those conditions that we hold ourselves to, it becomes easier to say, go ahead, be whoever and however you need to be because I no longer need to like everything about you or subscribe to all these crazy conditions in order to love you. It's the great improv of life, right? Improv only works when you get on stage and somebody goes, I got here in my spaceship. And if you say to them, there's no such thing as a spaceship. Yeah. That's the end of the improv. And so if you can say to them, oh yeah, really? I love spaceships. That's crazy. Did you see any aliens? And then they say, yeah, I saw about And there you have this thing. And if you focus on the minute that you're in, if what's real right now, then you can roll with things without the expectation, without the idea. And it's, it's, it's really the only way. And it is like, it's a mm. lifelong journey, like for real. It, I think even if you're conscious and trying to do it, I just think it's a forever thing to unwind and be in the minute with the human for what they're saying. Even now with you guys sitting here, I'm anticipating like, I wonder what they're, okay, how am I going to answer? And then I'm just like, dude, the opposite of what we're even talking about. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. And then you just kind of surrender to it. What you're yeah. talking about here is overthinking in a way, how it is such an impediment. And the next song on the album is Mm. about just that. (laughs) This is a song called Type Erase. I'm kind of in love with your best friend Stella. She was so cold the first time I met her. And I just can't resist being treated like shit, being left out to dry by a woman. You know, all of this just goes back to my mother. We play around and make each other scream We stay too long and make each other mean You can never take back anything you say People hear words in their own way I'm the first to blink, I could overthink Winning the lottery I got careful, you got more carefree If loosens a game, then I'm an MVP that line about being careful is really a line about being rigid. Yeah, totally. Mm. And yet you see the, mm. and then you got more carefree, right? That carefreeness. It's what Alan Watts would call being wiggly. And we mistake that wiggliness for weakness sometimes. The ability to be carefree. Oh, look at that hippie. They don't have it together. As though you should have it together. Totally. Having it together presupposes that there's a certain criteria. That there's a together. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and like the most rigid thing in the world, you think of like the IRS or something. Is that something we aspire toward being? <laughs> totally. David Foster Wallace wrote a whole novel about this called The Pale King. And it's a novel about boredom. And it takes place in an IRS office in Peoria, Illinois <laughs> in 1985. And I mean, there are some pages where it's literally like T.K. Coleman turns a page. Matt Nathanson turns a page. Jordan Moore turns two pages and then turns one page back. And yes, it's really, <laughs> yes, I hear the snoring from Alabama over there. And it's boring. Mm. It's rigid. There's no life to it. But that carefree thing you're talking about in the song mm. is when you, when the overthinking 
dissipates and you're just living, you're wiggly. It ties back into what you said about being sort of like, it's the idea that the tree, right? That's my favorite image that I always think about. Trees in the wind, if you're too stiff, you they break, right? Branches fall off and trees fall. And if they're sort of wiggly, they're able to sort of take whatever comes their way, read in the river stuff. And it's like, it's, it is the answer to it all. It's crazy how much that kind of stuff is just dead on, like Eastern, the Buddhist ideas. Um, they're just so right. And that's it. It's a, a tree that stands as rigid as it can in the, in the wind. It's just going to snap. Mm -hmm. So much of that rigidity comes from social pressure. It's like if someone sees you being wiggly, then they kind of assume that you must not be sufficiently smart to know that there are responsibilities yeah. to take care of. You know, the, the, the person that's kind of, you know, frivolous and playful, it looks like they, you know, they're out of touch with reality. There are important, serious things that need to be done. And, and to tie it back in with the last song, there's a line in there that relates to exactly that, where you said, I left without saying a word. And what I got out of that was oh. you exercised your power to be who you needed to be without being pressured by the need to make sense out of your life to the people you were leaving behind. And so many times that need to justify ourselves, explain ourselves, becomes this great weight that anchors us down in places that we need to get the hell out of. Yeah. You know, we can't be playful. We can't be creative. We can't be authentic. If we need to make sense out of all the rigid people who say, but you need to look this way. You're all talking about like everything. So it's so fantastic. The idea that as humans, people think, well, I'm not really creative. That's what they say, right? That's like the go-to. Well, I'm yeah. not, that's more, you're creative, but I'm not really creative. My wife sometimes says it and I'll be like, mama, you're the most creative. Like when it comes mm -hmm. to how you interact with humans, how you read humans, how you, it's like people are your art. You know what I mean? Like, and this is the idea we get into this concept. I've, I read this book. I've, I read it kind of on, on the regular called The Courage to Be Disliked. Mm -hmm. And the, and the, I'm sure, and the idea uh, the idea that I really love is that like you, c you just have to do you and your intentions are what you, you know, if they're true, if my intention is to be kind and I say something and you misinterpret it and you think that I'm not being kind, that's on you. Like, that's not for me to sweep up. That's not for me to figure out. It's a really difficult concept, this thing, because you, because I want every interaction to be this sort of like, he wasn't, he awesome. Yeah. He's the best. And really it's like, I can't control how anybody, and this was mm. what that song Pigeons and the, my mom, I tried my whole life to make my mom love me. I tried my entire life. I did everything by the, I would like chart. I'd be like, I can do this. I'm going to make sure this works. And every time it was met with like the opposite reaction to what I meant. Like, I was like, no, 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 I'm trying to help. And then it's like, at that point you have to kind of peace out. Like, later. Like mm. we're not in alignment here and you're misinterpreting and that's, that's you. And if you want to have a connection where I say to you, I think you're misinterpreting me, which is what a real relationship does. I think you're misinterpreting me. And, and what I mean is this. Mm -hmm. And then the person goes, oh yeah, I was. That's what great human interaction is all about. But most people don't have the energy, the time, the vulnerability, certainly not the vulnerability to be like, oh, okay. And every time I would approach like that, it was like, it was like fire. And that's my, I come from a family where that's how it is. There's no vulnerability. Mm. It's just not how they work. TK has taught me a lot about approaching situations without hubris oh. because he approaches things very, so curiously and, and someone could say something accusatory to TK 
and he'll say, just simply say, that's interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> but he'll do so from a, a genuine place, right? Not like I'm trying to convince you of anything, but help me understand your point of view. And it's totally disarming. Well, you know, think of it as if it were something positive. If someone walked up to me and were like, dude, I know you're a billionaire, no matter what you say to me. You're li-, and I say, I'm not a billionaire. They go, no, you're lying to me, TK. I know you're a billionaire. I can't help but be curious. What is it about me that makes you think I'm a billionaire? Because I know you're so far off from my reality. I've got to know what am I projecting? What is it about the way you hear me that makes you think that? Because maybe I can manipulate that to become a billionaire. Maybe there's something uh, about myself that it would be interesting to know. But it's the same way with all the negative stuff, right? You may know that you're not an asshole. And if someone says you're an asshole, that's just like them accusing you of being a billionaire in spite of your defense. Like, <laughs> tell me why. That's really interesting. I love it. You know? yeah. Curious, not furious is what, what, what the like idea. But, you, but And the way that you say it, it's like, that, that's such an, inc- it really is the only way to go through life. Like mm-hmm. when you said it, it reminded me of that idea of like curious, not furious. It's like, how do you approach someone and if you have the bandwidth to be able to be like, let me know, what, what do you mean? Tell me what you mean uh, by that. And, and, and then you get insight into them, you get insight into you, and then you're able to sort of learn, like it's all about learning. Life is about learning. Yeah. And so why wouldn't you ask people in those moments, you know, if you, if you have the bandwidth to do it, sometimes you just have to kind of peace out and move on. But like, without saying a word, totally. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's funny and not to circling around to this. And I don't know how to bring it, but like growing up in Chicago, right? Like growing up in Massachusetts, we are like, you grew up in the Midwest, Dayton. Dayton. And it's like, we all came from different places. We all are very different people right? We come from, and the experience that you had growing up in Chicago, the experience I had growing up in, and it's like, there's, it's funny when you see how the, the positive, like the healthy way that people have learned to sort of like take on what the world is sort of like imposing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, as a, as a straight white man, nobody has imposed shit on me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like a truth. Except like, for that. Right, well, that, yes. And yeah. there is that. But, yeah. but, but, th- but I've been in the winner's circle. Right, right. Right. I totally yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. But I've been in the winner's circle on a lot of levels. Like I yeah, pierced yeah. my nose. I had hair down to my butt, you know, whatever. But it was never like, I was never, I never had the push of something that would make me, f- you know what I'm saying? I don't know how to say it in a graceful yeah, way, but yeah. I'm just saying like the, the that is such a, healthy like that just feels so correct when you said that I was like yeah that's how you do it because I grew up fighting I grew up with like my whole identity was like and maybe this is the what my shoot that I came down was like I'm not a, I'm not a I'm not a weakling like I'm not a wimp mm. I'm powerful like I'm not weird I'm a badass like I I and then I'd want to be like whatever it was I did I would be interpreted in Massachusetts in this way. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm tough. Like I can yeah. do it. Like I can take, I can take it. And everybody comes down their chute in their way and, and finds unhealthy ways and healthy ways to deal with it. And I think the curious, not furious is the absolute best way to do it. Yeah. Like, I just think because it's you taking ownership of your experience as opposed to letting somebody else put their thing on top of you. Yeah, that's right on. And, and you know, and a, the expression of opinion is exceptionally easy to dismiss. So if someone accuses you of being a billionaire, uh, 
And, and you say, well, no, I'm not. I mean, all you've done is just given me something easy to disagree with. But when you hit that person up with the question, why do you think I'm a billionaire? It actually challenges them to think about their own assumptions. And only good can come out of that. And, and that's, that's when conversation leads to discovery because no one knows what's going to happen next. I can't tell you how the person's going to answer that question. That's yeah. so rad. You're like a Buddha over there telling me that. That's what it is, but that's what you can do. Is it's you... the bald head, man. You, you, you don't know this, but I just shaved. Did you really? So yeah, yeah. And, and it's like beaming. There's a light coming out Oh my of God, it, so. it's, it's you're straight up booting right now. That's going to be our verb. You're straight up, TK's straight up booting over there. Matt, one of my favorite books is a book called Civilized to Death mm. by Christopher Ryan. And the subtitle is The Price of Progress. Oh. And your next mm. song is called future's here. And it's about just that. My phone knows what I'm thinking. Yeah, I never have to spell. And the sun can power cities. And my car can drive itself. It's beautiful or tragic. Sometimes it's hard to tell. If it's science fiction magic. Or just Rome before it fell. Oh yeah, the future's here, but you're not So what's the use in all the miracles that I got? Science and progress, got nothing on sunsets Feeding in the sand, making plans in the dark That's exactly it. That's the sentiment there. Like, yes, we can progress, we can improve. But it's so weird that we're constantly trying to improve things that don't need to be improved. I, in fact, I generally don't like that word improve because it implies some sort of deficiency. I like the word healing because we heal when we need to heal. But if you're perfectly healthy, you don't need to heal. It's like if you're in a crater, then you need to get out of the crater. But once you're on the dry land, then you don't need to get out of the crater anymore. And healing is is very similar. And I think quite often we think there's a, well, we call it filling the void, right? And that presupposes the void is a bad thing. And yet you go anywhere that's beautiful, what do you see? A bunch of open space. And so maybe the void isn't a void. Maybe it's just openness, freedom, lightness, airiness. The void is actually the thing that we want not the thing that we need to fill. And on. We are really good at crisis. Creating them? No, getting out of them. Mm. And so then we create them, right? Mm. Because like humans can do a really good job. If things are going into trouble, we are really good at like sort of face-firsting our way through trouble. Just how, how it is. Like if we need to find food, we go find food. If we, you know what I mean? Like in a, in a primal sense, we're really good at sort of like dealing with that kind of thing. So much so that it becomes how we deal with everything, right? And so it's like, so what we're dealing with in the climate, they're going to figure that out, right? But they're going to figure it out when it's financially feasible, like when, when they're going to convince everybody. It's like, everybody's going to be convinced we're in deep trouble. Then they're going to be okay paying a premium. It's like how the capitalism thing works, not to get all, and I'm, I'm not anti-capitalism, but this version of it. But like, we're going to do all the wrong things up until the right thing to do. <laughs> it's, like, it's like how we work. And then we're going to do it. And then people are going to be like, oh my God, we've been, thank you. Yeah, we've been saved. 
instead of like doing the things along the way that would make it so that we wouldn't have to have a crisis and we wouldn't have to be saved, we could just be doing little bits and things ourselves and everybody could be chipping in. And I'm not saying this in a hippie, I don't know enough about it, but I'm using that just as an example. It's like, if we could just do the preventive maintenance along the way, do you know what I mean? You wouldn't have to throw it away and then start new. And that's the whole minimalist idea. It's like, do I really need a new thing? It's like, no, how about if I just take care of the few things that I care about? <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it really does loop back to everything you said earlier about rigidity. One of my favorite books, Robert Fritz, The Path of Least Resistance, he makes this powerful distinction between creativity and problem solving. He says problem solving is the management or elimination of what you don't want, whereas creativity is the manifestation or bringing forth of what you do want. So problem solving is, hey, there's a fire that started. I never wanted that in the first place, but it's kind of getting in the way of what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to go manage that and put it out so it doesn't create a bigger problem. Problem solving. You can spend an entire day putting out fires and still never create something that matters to you. And the reason I think this relates to rigidity is because when we ask, where is creativity born? It's not born out of necessity because we don't create to solve problems. We create in order to playfully produce things that are an expression of already existing abundance, right? Scarcity is a problem and we got to solve that. But creativity produces play and we don't play because there's a problem. We play because there's something about our humanity that says, I need to sing. I need to compose. I need to write. You know, I need to tag, tag you and say you're it and run away and see if you can catch me because that's not rigid. That's the wiggly way of being a human being. And that's our way out. But it's about making that mindset shift. It's funny. I was when you were saying all the things that were play, I think about like with when you're with your significant other and it's like, you know, touching somebody in a way yeah. where you like give time to sort of surrender to the sensuality of like yeah. how rad it is to have fingers that can touch a skin and the way it feels on skin. That's it, man. Like that's everything. And my wife always says, just because it's a challenge doesn't mean it's a problem. She's the one that Mm. came up with curious, not furious. She probably got, you know, but she was the one that told me about that. But also the idea, she's like, yeah, yeah, it's a challenge, but Mm. it's not a problem. And I'll be like, oh my God, you're right. You know, Mm. there's so few villains. There's so few actual problems but we manufacture them because they give us this feeling of crisis. And then we can rebound from crisis. We live in these dramatic non-realities that allow us to feel like we're living instead of just living. Hmm. This next song is definitely about living. It's my favorite song from Matt Nathanson's new album. It's called Soundtrack. I heard the city sing the night that we met It hung in the air like the moon We kissed in the Bowery and ditched all your friends To watch the sun rise from your roof Music saved my life It lit me like flare guns in the night It turned all my nightmares into dreams It was everything Now it's just the soundtrack to weekends Days in your bed while we sleep in And I watch you dress to the sound of a symphony Playing for two Music used to be everything to me Now it's just the soundtrack to you 
There's something about new relationship energy, yeah. right? That we can apply to long-term relationships if we find the right rhythm. Infamously, my wife and I, we live apart half the time. And so like, it's a weird thing for people to hear that, right? But it's just like when you're playing these songs, the space between the notes is just as important as the notes themselves. Otherwise, it's just noise. And I find the way that Bex and I really appreciate our relationship. We still have new relationship energy. She's gone this week. She's out in Minnesota with her family. And this week is, and I miss her, but making that space for desire, the space between the time that we're together creates that new relationship energy. Now, it's different for everyone. You know, if uh, some, some people play death metal. And so it's uh, they, they, Nicodemus is that way. Like He and his wife are together 98% of the time. But even they need the 2% in between yeah. that creates that new relationship energy for them. And so it, to me, this song is in a way about finding that new relationship energy, looking back at, at it fondly, finding that and pulling it forward. Ooh, you nailed that one so on the nose. I mean... So the song is about, there's, I was thinking about something while it was playing, which is a little side note, but this idea that I've always been sort of uh, bewitched, I guess is the term, by music, right? I've always been like in, enthralled and feeling like it was this mysterious thing, watching Led Zeppelin, right? Watching, also, you know, the, watching Prince, watching like the masterful people, Joni Mitchell. And uh, recently I've started really coming to terms with the fact that it's... Um, it's actually just uh, work and that it's actually just effort expended on your, in your craft, right? And the idea mm -hmm. that it doesn't mean that Led Zeppelin wasn't a chemical reaction of four people on stage. It doesn't mean that Prince wasn't gifted in a way that, but it's this idea that like, I can't, I, I don't have to see it as mysterious. I can actually apply myself to it and I can actually get my version of that. And, and I was thinking about it in terms of what you're talking about, about, um, it's energy, right? It's, it's energy. We have it. And so it's, it's ours to do with what we want. If we can just learn how it works and do our best to reframe it and focus it in a way that works for us. And in my relationship with my wife and in my relationship with myself and in my relationship with my city and in my relationship with the shower and in my relationship, I say on the, on the regular, like how rad is it that we get to live in San Francisco? Like, or how rad is it that you love me and I love you? How rad is it that our kids downstairs like playing piano or how rad is it that the, it can be anything. And the, the, what you said, uh, TK, this thing about, it doesn't have to all be good, right? The idea of like, <laughs> how rad is it that we that this thing that we tried to do failed to have, how we tried to have a kid and it didn't work way back, you know, our second kid, it just like wasn't, and it's like, but how rad is it that that's an experience we got to have in our life? You know, this is what it's about. And so I was thinking about the idea of soundtrack and what you're saying about energy. And that's what the song is. It's the idea that music used to be everything to me. And now it's just a soundtrack to you. Like you're, you're the music, you're the thing. It's just a side note. And it might be about myself, but, you know, I see it in this relationship way because that's how I feel. But when I'm just saying it now, it's like, I think it is about me. It's like music used to be everything to me. Now it's just a soundtrack to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the idea. Fascinating. I love talking to you guys. <laughs> so great. It's so it's smart. Stuff. Let's listen to another song. This is the ninth song on the album. It's called Sway. Mm -hmm. 
night in Chinatown Bars kicking people out Stumbling into an empty street All of our friends complain About how this city's changed But it's only ever been you and me Most of us talk too much Never say enough Trying to disappear Above the wasted words Above the fireworks You've only ever been clear I was lost And you knew it Tied in knots You'd undo Tried to drown As soon as I heard this song, Matt, I, I texted my wife. She was gone. I just texted her. I said, I love the way you sway. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Because, well, this song is about sort of an eternal love that's unaffected by these outside circumstances. You got this line here. All of our friends complain about how the city's changed, but it's always ever been just you and me. Yeah. And it's funny. We find everything to complain about. I lived in Montana for a while and everyone's complaining about all the people moving there. And it's like, you realized you moved here and it's not you, your parents or your parents, someone moved here, right? And whoever was here at the time was complaining about your parents moving here, right? Oh yeah, but it's different now. No, I mean, it's always different, but it's always the same as well. And what I love about that line is, yeah, there's all these externalities, but it's always just been you and me. Yeah, it's the pickleball thing. Everybody loves pickleball now. They talked about it on NPR. And now there's entire, uh, there's someone wrote a book about why people like pickleball. Why it's the thing that people like, because we think, they think it's because of this and it's less of a, tennis is more of an elitist thing and pickleball is more. And then people start complaining about pickleball. Mm. Right? <laughs> God, it's so much louder. The pickleball court that they put in where the tennis court was is so much louder. Like, I don't know what it is. Is the pickleball louder than the tennis ball? Maybe it's just, and then the the person that analyzes says, "We, I think that it's the rhythm of the pickleball game. It's just different." <laughs> and everybody gets bent. Pickleball, wow! You know, I love pickleball. I hate pickleball. Wow, pickleball. And then pickleball goes away, like smoothies did, bagels. <laughs> and then they come back around. You know what I'm saying? And I just think that's the cycle of what we. If people that are not awake, that's the cycle. Something's mm. fun. I love that it's fun. I hate that it's different. Why is it different? Tell me why it's different. Tell me why I like it. <laughs> I hate this. And that's the idea of, um, <laughs> and San Francisco happens to be one of those places, right? We live in San Francisco. I'm going to live there as long as we live there. I love it. People say, isn't it weird that it's changed so much? You know, they'll say, isn't it? There's a pe people living on the streets. It's like, well, have you looked in your neighborhood? Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's my favorite. Like we have on a seven by seven island, essentially. It's, there's nowhere to hide them like they do in, you know, Dallas. But it's like, um, it's a fascinating thing where people say it's just a different city. Last night we had dinner with a friend and, and they said, yeah, well, so-and-so moved out because it's just different, isn't it? I said, no, no, no. It's because they came here and the thing, they're different. 
the city is the city. Why are you humanizing a place that it's literally buildings and trees and an ocean on one side? It's like, no, it's the same city. I never came here to be a part of a, tr- of a group. I never came. I came here because I love the way the air moves. I love that I can walk to the woods. I love that I can walk to the beach. I love that there's a bookstore on this corner. You know, there's not as many. And so, okay, cool. I love that it's artsy and the feel. I love the architecture, you know, but really I just love it. It's like, it's a city. It's great. It's my home Mm -hmm. right now. And I, and it's this idea of like people that stop, people that change really like to blame the place. And it's like, yeah, change. Everything changes. Fucking change. It's the job of the universe. You know what I mean? Like just get, like just admit I was no longer the place for me, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's how it works. Like that song that says, drunk at Pagoda, waited half the night to sing Tiny Dancer at Dawn. So Pagoda is this um, karaoke bar. I've, I don't drink. I've never done karaoke. And right before the pandemic, I did karaoke with um, some some kind of new friends of ours who've turned into really just great. We're in this really nice aligned place. And I went and I sang and I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And it's in Japantown that I've walked by a million times. It's like, there are things to discover at every point. And if you abandon it, you're going to see abandoned stuff. And if you don't abandon it, you're gonna, if you want to be alive in it, you're going to see alive stuff. You create it. People just don't want to admit that that's their power. They want to give that power away to somebody else. They want to say, well, you did this to me or why didn't you do this for me? And it's like, man, it's you. Yeah. We are all interconnected. It's, a, it's like it is an ecosystem, but we live and we die and we experience things by ourselves. And it's our job. That's all we control is how we interpret that. If what you're saying is true, that means we're more awesome than we can possibly imagine. So why then are we so scared of our awesomeness? Give I'm me asking, some five. I'm asking. Because, yeah. it, okay, that's a really good question. Why are we afraid of our awesomeness? Um, because it's, first of all, it's not framed as awesome, mm. right? So we've never learned that it's awesome. That's how I see it mostly. In we the, take it for granted. W- w- but also we're taught, right, that like, that there's these things in place that work. It, we just were never taught like, you're the center of the universe, you're the, you're beautiful. You're every, self-love is it. It is it in a real way, not arrogance, not ego, but like you're beautiful. Man, you're, you're, you're making me realize something, especially when you said you're the center of the universe. The only time we get that is when we screw up, mm. right? Oh, wow. Like, like when, when, when something goes wrong and we look around uh-huh. to point the finger, we find one person or one group of people and we say, you are the one with the power to make all these people unhappy and we hate you for that exercise of power. And so what do we learn to think? Oh, my power to create, my power to influence my environment is this bad thing because I'm the screw up. No one ever says, hey man, if you had the power to create that, you got the power to uncreate it. If you got the power to screw things up and destroy them, you have the power to build things up and construct them. We don't get that positive conversation. We get the blame, which is why when people hear responsibility, they they hear it's your fault rather than you've got the power to create a new reality. I'm not saying the president doesn't have power, right? What we just saw, we see influence, we see that kind of stuff. But like, if you want kindness to be pervasive in the world, you have to be kind. Mm-hmm. It has to come from you. 
And I know it's like hippie and I know that we can shoot that full of holes, but it's the truth. It's like, if you want to have a just world, you have to treat people just. If you want a kind world, you have to treat people kindly. This is just it. It has to start with you. We are in a multi, multi-layered situation. And everybody thinks if you change the top layer, that was this podcast, and this, this I forget her name, but she said, we have this illusion that if we change the top layer, it's going to be this incredible thing. And it's like, we all think that the elections and we're like, no, or yay. And it's like, dude, in your microcosm universe, in the, I see it as rings and trees. It's like the ring that you're the center ring. You've got like three or four people in that ring. And in the next ring, you maybe have three or four. It's like, focus on those rings and then be kind. When somebody cuts you off, curious, not furious. When somebody is yells at you, instead of snapping back and wanting to knock them in the face, how many times have I gotten into fights? Like literally like grabbed someone and been like, it's like, you want, you don't, you want peace. So you go about it through war. What a crazy idea. Like you, why are you being so loud? And instead of like when my kid is being, and I, all I want is that to be quiet and then mm. I'll yell. Mm. What a, what a wacko trip, you know? Hey, I want peace. So I'm going to just make the biggest stink ever to get to peace. It makes no sense. You got to practice peace. If you want peace, you got to practice kindness. If you want kindness and, and, that's it. And, and that begins with directing that peace and kindness and love towards mm. ourselves by saying, the reason I'm doing this is because I too am broken. And it, it goes back to what you said earlier. I have inherited a way of dealing with my traumas and dramas. And because I have been hurt and wounded in this way, I am hurting and wounding others. And to know that I'm inclined in that direction, I can then sort of love myself and be kind and forgiving towards myself as I work to a better pattern. Because it's your superpower. Because it's like the thing that makes you a superhero. It's your fingerprint. Come it's on. like the thing that makes you exceptionally you. Come on. Say it, it to me and, in that Boston accent. <laughs> say it to me in that Dude, Boston accent. Dude, it's the thing that makes you you. <laughs> but like that's it. I mean, that is everything. It's like mm. my wife said this to me. I, I, this record is really singer-songwritery, right? Yeah. And I don't want to be a singer-songwriter because I don't want to be pigeonholed as a singer-songwriter. But this is what I do. <laughs> Mm. So it's like, and she said to me, she's like, yeah, you keep seeing it as like a deficiency when it's a strength. Mm. And I was like, you, you know, and, th- and that's the key to it all. If we could just invest in who we actually are, broken and traumatized and beautiful and amazing. The only currency we have in this life is our fucked up, unique fingerprint. Like that's it. Our own unique, weird, crazy self. That's the only thing that's worth anything. And people go their whole lives trying to shield that, trying to get rid of their Boston accent, trying to move past the thing that they just have. Yeah, there's so much there. In fact, I want to wrap up the album because I know we have some questions here. Our live caller is on standby. We'll get to them in a minute, but let's wrap up this album. This is the perfect way to end an album. (laughs) You rule. Because here's the thing. You see singer-songwriter as a pejorative because you don't want to be lumped in with John Mayer and Jack Johnson and yep. whomever, the greats, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 You definitely named a couple of real winners there. That was good. <laughs> that was good. That's good. If I dissect the words and move them in a different order, you love all of them. You're like, yeah, I'm a singer. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a writer. Yeah, I play songs. Oh, yeah, but I'm not a singer-songwriter. Totally. This last song on the album, Perfect Way to End an Album. This is called Blush. For a minute there, we were perfect Crash and burn, but it was worth it We made the beautiful people wanna be like us And that's enough 
Some hearts gotta break to let the light in Took some time but now I'm smiling I loved you even before I knew what love was Everything else felt so unimportant Back in your Boston bed And when the sun is getting lower And your wildest days are done And they ask you about a photograph From back when you were young Well baby you don't have to tell them What you did when we were us But when you think about it I hope you blush just a little bit When you think about it I hope you blush just a little bit I can think of relationships, obviously, where I, I look back fondly at them and I, I certainly blush like, and I don't have to talk about it publicly. It's not a public thing. There's, there's this private intimacy. But also, what you're doing is you're looking back with appreciation. These aren't just rose-colored glasses, the, the nostalgia of the past. But there's a, a gratitude for, hey, that made me who I am today. And you're wrapping up the album in a way. You know, the, yes, you're, you're a, a singer-songwriter, but you're, you're a writer. I mean, these, these lines, I know you have a way of crafting a line that just sticks. And uh, I really appreciate that about you. And I want to thank you for this album because it's uh, an acknowledge you for the album. A stunning new album. Bravo, man. Um, I mean, thank you. You make me feel, uh, you're, you're so incredibly good at, uh, you're just so good at, at articulating things and you're so passionately invested in the things that you articulate that it's like, I believe you. I don't take compliments particularly well. It makes me kind of uncomfortable. Uh, but when you say it, I just kind of go, well, that's, that's neat. I want to see it from that perspective. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I back it. I thank you. Well, you never know how someone is going to see the thing once you've put it out there. I think my favorite project of yours was like the iTunes session thing that you did, which was the most singer-songwriter thing yeah. you ever did, right? Yeah. But it was unabashedly you. It was you and a microphone and a guitar and the words that you had written. Yeah. And it was stripped down to the essence. We got behind all of the production and all the elements and all the pomp and circumstance. And it's a guy with his words and his thoughts and and the sort of heart behind those. And uh, I, I find that great music like yours sort of puts you in that state of what Dallas would call no mind, right? Uh, I think they actually translate it to no heart as well. So it's like when they, they think about heart and mind, it's not like your physical heart, right? right. It's, it's, it's something else. It's transcending the past and the future and, and the thoughts and the overcomplicating and it's funny because a lot of that is in your music, but then it takes you out of the, the nonsense of, of daily life. That's, uh, that, to me, that is when you've just described when music does. It's why I love music the most. And I, as a kid and all the way through, I wear headphones almost all the time because I love to, uh, when I'm in airports, when I'm at, you know, like, it doesn't mean I close that, but I, I, because the best moments going to shows is when I forget what I'm doing, who I am, why I'm there. And I just get swept up and it happens in film. It happens with paintings. It happens with poetry, but music is the most sort of potent punch and I can get lost. I, it's not lost. I get found. I just get, I just lose all the stuff and I'm just like swept into this moment. And so it's the, it, to me, it's what makes music so incredible. 
God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Every time that chorus comes around, I forget who I am. And I'm in this thing with this song and I'm just in the moment of this thing. It's great, you know. It puts you there. Yeah, it, it strips everything back in yeah. a way. Yes, yeah, it, it is. That's the essence of minimalism. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to pursue happiness. Happiness is the default state. Contentment is the default state. Peace is the default state. Kindness is the default state. All of those other things can be your default as well because they've been programmed in, into you. You've been programmed to yearn, to crave, mm -hmm. to reach, to strive, to seek, to chase. We're call, we call it the pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah, yeah. Why do you have to pursue it if it's already right there? Let's move on to our callers. If you have a question for the podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Kathy from Oregon has a question for us. What are some ways to keep my mind on one priority when I have emotional clutter that pulls my thoughts in all directions? Worry, fear, failure, and not being good enough. Russell Sean, can we get Kathy on the phone? Hi, this is Kathy. Hey, Kathy, it's The Minimalist. How you doing? I am... I am... <laughs> oh, that's Ooh, beautiful. That's so good. That's so good, Kathy. This is Josh, by the way. I'm here with uh, TK Coleman and our friend Matt Nathanson. We were just uh, recording a little podcast here, and you had a question about worry and, and fear and, and failure and not being good enough. And thankfully, I'm with two people here who are good enough. <laughs> yes, they are. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, uh, about that worry that you're experiencing. The worry is not being good enough. Not, uh, of failing, of missing something. I time travel. Worry is a time travel. Worry is a time travel to the future, mm. right? It's like guilt is a time travel to the past, but... The worry is to pray for something bad to happen. Yeah. And I want to be in that state, that carefree state. I want to be in in that peaceful default. But I've gone through this circle of abandonment and failure and trauma and i want to be loved so right I am now loved the thing is i i talked to my therapist and she, about this and she said well her question was do you love yourself and i said no mm. let's talk about what it means to love you know you're talking about wanting to be loved is not as compelling as loving right and loving starts with loving yourself to love yeah. yourself is to see yourself for who you are without trying to change, improve, modify, complicate, etc. But it's kind of about getting down to the essence. We were talking earlier with uh, Matt and TK about being carefree. Matt has this great lyric on his new album uh, about being carefree versus careful. And it sounds to me like right now what you are, you're erring on the side of, of rigidity, of clinging to the way that you want things to be. And in a way, you're, you talked about in your voicemail, distracting yourself. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are your distractions? Yeah, it's, it's like, well, my distractions right now, I'm recovering from a burned out, I'm a burned out nurse. Um, I had some trauma at work, a head injury, mm. and I'm not able to work anymore um, as a nurse. So giving up that identity and then, Taking care of my father, who 
um, I've been doing for about four years. He's a he is a hoarder, rated fifteen out of five mm-hmm. <laughs> um, by professionals. And then I'm at the same time learning to untether from a toxic relationship with my mother who it's really difficult untethering from your mother. I'll say this. She's no. not <laughs> so much. I have so much. Yeah, it's a lot. And and so what we do instead of trying to look into those things so that we can process them and let them go, because that's ultimately what you want to do is you want to process it and let it go. You don't want to keep holding on to it. But instead of doing that, we often distract ourselves because distraction is easy. I'll just turn on the TV. I'll go to Instagram. I will do whatever I can to pacify myself, essentially. These distractions are are just sort of weeds that grow out of boredom or they grow out of worry or they grow out of fear. And so, TK, can you talk to, to Kathy about, um, about what she's experiencing? Absolutely. I, I, I want to just kind of zoom in for a quick moment on you saying you don't love yourself. So I can hear that in a couple of different ways. One way I can hear that is I don't will myself good. I don't desire for things to work out on my behalf. I don't support my efforts to create a healthy life. Another way I can hear that is, you know, I'm just not impressed with myself. I'm just not excited about the person that I am. And I just don't like myself. It sounds like when you say you don't love yourself, it's more of that latter. You're not excited about your life. You don't really like the person that you are and you aren't really impressed with yourself. Is that about right? I've accomplished a lot in life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more the first really to, to it's more really the first. do. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, like I don't even take care of myself. Sometimes I forget to eat. Yeah. And so when, when you, it sounds like when you evaluate your life, you say, look at the way I behave. Look at the way I've turned out. Look at the way I live. I clearly don't love myself. Yeah. I push and push and push and push. And my family tells me to slow down. My doctors have told me to slow down and take care of myself. And I don't. Mm. It sounds like what's going on. And I, and I, I want to hear feedback from you here. When you talk about this worry, it sounds like when you, when you name a lot of the different things in your life that just turned out in this frustrating, disappointing, or traumatic way, you look at these things and you say, man, see, if I had worried earlier or worried more before I got to this point, maybe I could have avoided this or maybe things would have turned out better. So this problem is a kind of punishment for my failure to worry enough or worry earlier or worry more effectively. Does that sound right? I don't know that worry is the word. I mean, it may be the word. I was raised by a psychiatrist and told that worry is a waste. Worry and guilt are a total waste. And I don't know. So I, I get I get the right answer from the psychiatrist about what worry is. <laughs> but but at, at an experiential level, this is something that you're doing, right? It is. Daily, all the time. Right now, yeah. actually. So, so yeah. you have two things going on. You've got this intellectual judgment that you're making about yourself because you know better. You were raised by a psychiatrist, so you know all the right answers for the test. But then you're looking at yourself yeah. and you're saying, but I'm actually doing this thing called worry. And you've got this intellectual judgment hovering above the whole thing saying, and you're bad for that. Yeah. The question I would ask myself is, what would my problems look like if I ceased treating them as punishment for the person that I am? Because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of self-judgment going on. And I'm not judging you for judging yourself. I'm, I'm observing it. There's a lot of self-judgment. I don't love myself. I don't like myself. I don't take care of myself. I don't treat myself kindly. 
what would some of these challenges and difficulties look like if you observe them as challenges that you could be completely honest about, but not as punishments for you falling short, doing something wrong, or being a bad person? What kind of possibility begins to open up around those difficulties? If I wasn't punishing myself for all this? Or if you weren't looking at your problems I, as... I just think yeah, that I could stay in the present. Mm-hmm. I think that I could stay in the present and oh, I'd almost slipped out and get more done. Wow. More priorities. <laughs> the one letter word. And, and um, how did it feel to just describe that, that possibility? I get too much done as it is. I need to take it easy. I yeah. need to take care of myself. <laughs> yeah. There's that judgment again. I feel like... Yeah. Uh, I, this is Matt, Matt, by the way, and I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I wanted to let you know from my experience, um, the, the self-inflicted judgments are always the thing that make the hard things impossible. And so it's like, I, I find that it's like before we've even started the race or we're in the middle of the race and tie our shoes together and try and, you know what I mean? Jumping over hurdles that aren't just the, the act of what you're doing sounds incredibly challenging. And I mean, all the things you're dealing with, your mom, your dad, your job, and then for you to put, um, to come down so hard on yourself about how you do them is just making it, it feels, that feels impossible. And I'm not even you, you know, just as somebody listening, I feel like, oh my God, that's, that feels like an impossibility. But the parts that you can actually control in that, at least that's what I would tell myself is I would say, if I could just let go of all this judgment, I could have this bandwidth to just experience the things I'm experiencing and maybe get some relief because the experiences that you're having are challenging enough in them in and of themselves without the thing that you're bringing to them. And that's really like, and, and you're suffering from the thing that I feel like everybody who's self-aware suffers from, which is like, you're smart enough to know the lay of the land, but you're still in the evolutionary process of like getting to the other side. And so you kick the shit out of yourself the mm-hmm. whole time instead of like being psyched that you're self-aware and that you're working this through. It's like you're, you're so fur- much further ahead than you even want to recognize. And in doing that, that's like, that's really pretty magical. Like not, uh, you can count, I can count on one hand people that are self-aware enough to know that kind of stuff. And so it's like, but, but the curse is that you're in it. And so you're self-aware enough to know, but you're not yet at the place you want to be. So you just kick, kick yourself around. Bingo. Kathy, I also see that because you're not where you want to be, you think that there's some sort of deficiency or inadequacy. And even in the heart of your question was about not being enough, right? Mm-hmm. Not being yeah. a good person even is what I sort of see that twin tinged with. The, the filter that is on top of all of this is like, if I just get there, I'll be enough as opposed to I'm enough and I'll get there. And that subtle reorientation, I, and I know that it's terrifying, right? Matt, I'm thinking of a, a song you have on one of your albums called Giants. Uh, the album or the song is called Giants. And you talk about um, everyone being afraid of, uh, of what they don't understand. And look, most of the things, fear does come from a, a feeling of consequence. There's going to be some sort of consequence, but generally those consequences are made up because we don't understand where we are right now. 
and and letting go of the the need to be there when you're already here is is one way to yeah. to sort of process the well process all of the stew of worry and dissatisfaction and and discontentment that that you're experiencing you have a way of putting this Josh where you say you're shooting all over yourself right now Kathy you're <laughs> shooting all over yourself and I am daily and, yeah, I would take a look at or just explore what it means to desire to want something without shooting over it, right? Because what seems to be lost right now is is a, is a very real distinction between I want this, I desire this versus I should be doing this. And when you're describing your life, there's a lot of shooting. I should do more. Oh, wait, I should do less. Oh, see? I'm overthinking now and I shouldn't do that. Oh man, I shouldn't judge myself for even having these thoughts. See, I'm I'm asking this question and I should be asking a different question. Maybe I shouldn't be asking and it at all. should should not be in my, should is not a word that I should be using. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there's that should, right? So we're, we're caught up in this, in this sort of cycle of should. One thing I, one just little exercise I would do and, and it's just, you know, take a sheet of paper and take some time and this isn't something that you should do. This is something that you could do. It doesn't come from obligation and duty. It comes from a sense of possibility and exploration. Curi- curiosity here. You can write down a list of just like one through 10. What are the things I think I should do? And then next to that, what are the things I would like to do? Or what are the things I desire to do, even if they're not required of me? And and take note of any differences between those two things and begin to explore the space that begins to open up for you when you start to think about your life and all the things that you do. It's like, hey, here's something that I could do. Here's something that I want to do. Not because it's objectively right, not because it's born out of necessity, not because I have to or somebody's making me or it makes me a good person, but because I am a person who doesn't need to justify herself because I'm not wrong as the default. Does that sound hopeful to try something like that? Yeah, yeah. It, I've I've thought about that, and those are two separately, totally different lists. I would like to spend more time on the things I desire to do. Hey, great job right there. I, I just want to compliment yeah. you on that. You saw that. You said I would like to spend more time on the things I would like to do. You didn't say I should spend more time on the things I like to do. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for your question. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. Our next question is from Amanda in Cairo, Egypt. How do I go about lowering or eliminating expectations, either in relationships or situations? So we're here with Matt Nathanson right now. He has a brand new album out. It's called Boston Accent. And I'm sure along with this album comes all sorts of expectations. Oh, yeah. Will I go double platinum again? Will the streamers put me on playlists? Will the venues fill up when I go on tour this fall? Which, by the way, if you want to see The Minimalists, you can just come to uh, one of Matt Nathanson's shows when he's in LA. We'll be there front row singing along. But uh, Matt, there's all kinds of expectations here. You've been doing this for a while. In fact, you're coming up on the 30-year anniversary of your first album. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, and yet, you became a overnight success 15 years into your career. Yeah. And there were a lot of expectations that sort of 
were heaped onto you at that point. I'm sure that untangling yourself from that web has been a another 15-year process. Yeah. I think expectations are the, uh, are the enemy of all the good. I just think you don't need them at all. I think, um, in fact, every time they show up, you kind of have to ditch them. I feel like it's just a fact. It's, it's sort of like, sort of like termites. Like you wouldn't have termites hanging around and be like, oh, that's cool. You guys just munch on that, you know, that beam. It's like, you just don't want them. You get, you, you got, as soon as you see one, you call somebody to come help you get rid of them. Yeah. And like, that's, it's just expectations are for suckers, man. That's just not the way yeah. to live. I'm, I'm way out on them. And I think, and I have them all the time. So I have to constantly, every time they show up, it's got to be like a check engine light. And I have to be like, okay, what's, what am I f- afraid of that this is coming up? What am I not seeing for what it is? It really is. And it was just the same with all, most of anxiety is based on things that don't exist. Right. And it's like, um, and expectation is totally just as soon as it shows up, you have to sort of go through the steps to sort of unwind it and be like, thanks for coming. And then kind of pat it on the ass and send it on its way. Mm. Every expectation is a roadblock on the highway to happiness. mm. And the weird thing is about those roadblocks is they're self-imposed. We drag them onto the road. And then we run into them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I'll say two things here. First, the idea of, of, of lowering expectations or limiting expectations, it's a defense mechanism. It's born out of a, a desire to or perceived need to protect oneself, right? Because the logic behind it is, hey, if my expectations are too high, I might get hurt or disappointed or angry at someone. If my expectations are not limited, if they don't have these constraints, you know, um, I, I might be brokenhearted. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to search for a method that allows me to limit them or lower them so I can't be hurt anymore. The first thing I want to say is that doesn't even work because you can be just as easily brokenhearted by low and and limited expectations. So for instance, if you have a low expectation that someone is willing to pay you a certain amount and you charge low and then you find out they would have paid you higher, you're going to be angry at yourself like, darn it, I should have had higher expectations, right? Or, Or you have a low expectation of how much someone is willing to help you or be there for you. So you don't ask for what you need. You don't state what's on your heart. And you don't get what you need. And later on, that person says, oh, I would have been happy to help you. And now you're angry at yourself. So there's nothing about a low or limited expectation that protects you any more than a high expectation. Expectation itself is capable of breaking your heart in both directions. The way out is to make the shift from the prediction paradigm to the paradigm of play. The reason that we have these expectations is because we go beyond what we actually know We think about the future and we try to predict what's going to happen. I do this all the time with the NBA. Like, TK, how are the Chicago Bulls? How are they going to do this year? I have no clue because it's the future, right? But what I do is I make a prediction. Oh, we're going to be the the number three seed in the East and and, and we'll get to the second round. And then I become attached to my prediction because now it says something about my foresight, my intelligence. I get attached to the happiness I think I will feel if they do as good as I predicted. And now that prediction becomes an expectation And I go from not knowing the future to being angry at every referee and every opponent that keeps the Bulls from fulfilling my prediction, right? What I could have just said, instead of trying to predict it, I could have approached it playfully. Oh, I don't know how they're going to do. But man, I love to watch and see how it unfolds. I'm curious to see how Lonzo Ball is going to do this year. I'm curious to see how DeMar DeRozan is going to do this year. And what's beautiful about the play paradigm is that when you play, you're only focusing on your contribution. 
Watching the Bulls, that's something that I can control, right? Keeping track of the score, I can control that and I feel good. But prediction externalizes me. It puts me in the control of referees and other people. So don't force yourself to predict a future so that you become attached to them and these expectations that break your heart are formed. Play around with what you can control and let the expectations go. It ties into what we talked about earlier about why are people so afraid of their awesomeness? Mm. You asked that question. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you'd rather invest in something like expectations of a situation that you can't control. You'd mm. rather invest in anxiety about something that may occur. That's rather than the vulnerability of investing in the chaos and beauty of the self. That's so good. Because like, we are we are a fallible mess humans so we'd rather project onto something that we think we can that we can either blame or have control over that kind of stuff instead mm. of investing in this idea of like i'm awesome and all of my mm. sort of messiness and all of my glorious self that's good and that was the idea is like i think it's so vulnerable and so un it's it's a, it's messy to love yourself and it's really easy and clean to have expectations about things that you, that, you know, and it's, ener it's all the same energy. So I don't know why it, it, and energy is finite. So why, instead of focusing on this, if you focus that energy on loving yourself and you turn that power into something that fed you instead of drained you, you, I mean, think about how amazing we'd all be if we could actually do that, you know, yeah, get up right. in the morning and be like, yeah, I'm beautiful. Like yeah. I've got this little bit of a belly here that's shining. Isn't that cool? That means I've li I remember that food. That was great. It's like this beautiful <laughs> sense of like, isn't this rad? My shape is changing as I get old. Instead of expecting, like, why am I looking like this? I'm supposed to look like this. I want to look like this. I want to be this. Instead of like, this is me. I'm good. Yeah. You know? People feel like they they need that self-condemnation to be motivated to change, yeah. right? Because if, if I can say I'm beautiful the way I am, then won't that mean I'll lack the motivation to go to the gym? And we, ha we don't have a concept of how we can evolve or change from a place of self-love. Because just as I can say my body is beautiful right now, my concept of a different body that I want to play around with, that too is beautiful. And the exercise that I want to do, that too is beautiful. It can all come from this place of beauty. Because yeah. when you love yourself, how much more fun is like, I don't know if this is going to get edited, but like if you angrily masturbate, that's like not fun. Right, right. <laughs> like who wants right. to do that? Like just like, I'm going to masturbate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like hey, the, it's you, true, man. You, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's got to be this sort of like surrender to the self. And it's the same idea. It's like, you're not going to want to go to the gym and throw around your body if you don't think your body's beautiful and rad. Do you know what I mean? Like you're not yeah. going to want to get in bed with your lover or your significant other and like play around with them if you're if you if you think you're not beautiful. And yeah. it's not and we've got this stigma in the world of like that well if you think you're beautiful you're arrogant. And it's like well that's not you have to be more, you know, tamp that down. And it's like no, no, this is the opposite of something that needs to be tamped down. This thing needs to be pumped up because we're spending so much time having expectations about things that we don't even it's like yeah. You know, conjecture about like, well, I want, it's like trying to wonder what the weather's going to do. Like, instead of just being like, it's raining. How? Oh, rain on my skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's great. One more very quick word about expectations. An expectation without an agreement is just an assumption in disguise. If I expect you to meet me at the coffee shop at 2 p.m. and you didn't agree to that, I don't have an expectation. I have an assumption and I'm calling it something else. 
if you agree to meet me at the shop, coffee shop at 2 p.m., I just have an agreement with you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to hold up my part of the agreement, hope that you do the same. And if you don't, then I have to make the necessary adjustments to ensure that I'm able to create the sorts of experiences that I want. So what I would say is get rid of expectations altogether, call them what they really are, assumptions, and don't have assumptions. And instead, (laughs) translate your desires into agreements so that you don't have to have assumptions and you don't have to worry about this expectation business. What TK just gave us there was a recipe for decluttering your expectations. Right. That's beautiful. Amanda, I'm going to send you a copy of our book. It's called Everything That Remains, the second book that Ryan and I wrote together. And it's really about letting go of expectations to live more meaningfully. Ryan and I not only walked away from these corporate careers and the way the world expected us to be, to be these suit and tie successful guys, walked away from those expectations and sort of created our own new agreements right. with each other and, and ultimately with, with ourselves. Let's move on to some... Actually, you know what? Let's move on to our lightning round. This is where we answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. And we put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. And now you can find all of our minimal maxims in one place, minimalmaxims.com. Now, Matt, this is kind of like what you do with your lyrics. They're all minimal maxims in a way. And earlier on the private episode here, we were going through each song and sort of talking about some of these these lines. There's an entire world in these lines. So what we try to do is we answer a qu- question with something pithy, and we can ramble on a little bit if, if necessary. Alabama, Jacob has a question for us. What is the most meaningful thing you guys have done? I hate this question. Wow. <laughs> And let me explain why. That's a tough one. And so here's my pithy answer for you. Competition confounds contentment. Yeah, I back that. So like, what's the most, like, here are the 10 most meaningful things I've done. I need to do something even more meaningful in order for my life to be meaningful. And I know this isn't the essence of Jacob's question. If I were to be charitable to Jacob here, Jacob's saying, hey, I'm, try- I'm trying to find something meaningful to do with my life. And I totally get that. But the problem I run into is I did something meaningful last year. I guess I have to top that now because we're so in love with superlatives. I need something to be meaningful. Not only do I need to be the most, I need to be meaningful. I need to be the most meaningful. This meal isn't delicious. It's the most delicious meal I've ever had. Matt Nathanson's new album, Boston Accent, isn't a great album. It's his best album. And when you start saying these superlatives, that is another type of expectation, right? And we expect to constantly do better and better and better. Well, better relative to what? It's all about our own preferences or whatever. I might think Boston Accent is your best album, or I might think Show Me Your Fangs is, you know, whatever it is. It's just my own opinion, my own preference, right? We try to map that onto the world as well. You hear this conversation all the time. Who's the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT basketball player? It's like, well, according to whom, right? According to what stats or metrics or, or whatever. And so I'll tell you, one of the most meaningful things that's ever happened was yesterday. I was walking in the woods by myself and I just had a profound moment of calm and peace. And I didn't share it with anyone on Instagram. I didn't have my wife there. I didn't have my daughter there. I was all by myself and that was meaningful. But there are other times where I've spent an hour with my daughter reading poetry that she didn't understand. And that was meaningful. Mm. I don't know what was the most meaningful, but it's always meaningful to me if I'm there. If I'm actually there in the moment, I'm not staring in the rear view. I'm not looking far ahead at what's going to happen next week or my to-do list, but it's wherever I am right here right now. 
thousand percent. I back all that. I had a great, I had great tea this morning at breakfast. It was like I just sat there and journaled, and uh, drank this tea, and I was like, "This is damn good tea. It's warm and it's like milk. We got that nice milky balance." And I was writing in my journal. I liked the way the pen felt in my hand. I liked the way the paper felt under my pen. I felt, I felt exactly. That felt like one of the best things I've ever done. What you're talking about is noticing. Yeah, in that moment, it's like they're all the best things you've ever done because it's like, yeah, if you're there in it, like you're saying, if you can notice it, it's all great. Usually when we notice, it's because we're in some sort of pain or suffering or discomfort. And we notice those things. Like you notice your shoes if they're too small. But the ideal shoe, you don't notice it at all, right? And so what do we have to do? We actually have to pay attention in order to notice. Unless there's some sort of direct pain going on in our lives, something that's creating discomfort, of course we're going to notice that. But as soon as your knee doesn't hurt, you don't notice that your knee doesn't hurt right now, TK. But as soon as it starts hurting, then you notice it. Well, the key to living meaningfully is to notice it when it doesn't hurt. Yeah, you know, I heard a monk say that the reason you leave the world behind in order to find God is so that you can learn how to find God in all aspects of the world. Meaning that there's so much to notice in life, but our ability to notice is compromised by all of the noise. And the noise has conditioned our very habits of listening. And so you leave the world behind and you find a quiet space, not because God is only found in the quiet spaces, but because your capacity to notice, to name, to recognize, to receive, to listen, to hear is cultivated in that space of solitude, in that space of silence. And then you go back to the world and the spiritual journey is complete because now you can do the ordinary things that you once had to abandon with a sense of the sacred being a part of it all. I'm going to give my most meaningful experience. It's not my most meaningful, but you know what I mean. And I'm going to change it on the fly because I have something else I shared with you before. Uh, And it is, I stopped living up to my potential and I started living from my sense of possibility. I came to the recognition at a point in my life that living up to my potential was a trap, a set of golden handcuffs. Because I would try things and people who respected me, people who liked me, people who knew me since I grew up, people who thought I was something, something amazing, they would say, man, you're so much more than that. Like you've got so much more potential than that person that you're dating, than that place you're living, than that lifestyle that you have, than that thing that you're doing. I mean, imagine if I looked at you, Josh, and I was like, man, the minimalist, like, bro, you got, you got potential to make millions. Like advertisements suck. Bro, listen, let me show you the numbers, how much money you could make if you just started charging for advertisements. God, you sound like my agent. <laughs> Once a month, he calls me. He's like, "You uh, still think advertisements suck?" Yeah, that's awesome. And, and and so we have these ideas for people. Like, ooh, when I look at you, I can see who you can be, right? And 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 I tend to think my ideas of you are more than your ideas of, of you, course. right? And so that could be a set of golden handcuffs because you spend your whole life trying to live up to someone's ideals for you, and those ideals aren't even your ideals. It's like you said in the documentary, man. I was living the American dream, but it wasn't my dream. And we live in a world that tells us over and over again, follow your dream. And we emphasize the dream without emphasizing the your. It's, it's totally accurate. There was this great idea of um, 
you know you're living in someone else's fiction when things don't make sense for mm. you. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and that's the idea. We're living in a world where people are trying to chase after someone else's ideas of a dream. You're, you know you're in someone else's dream. And that's, we spend most of our time in other people's dreams. Like, and it doesn't make sense. We don't know why we hate ourselves. We don't know why we keep falling short of our expectations for it. We don't understand why nothing works. Yeah. And it's because we have these dreams that we're living in that have been put in place by someone other than us. Yeah. And I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, and we're trying to meet the expectations of that experience. And that's just like a recipe for disappointment. And it's why so many people to tie it back. It's why we have such, such a disappointment in this, in as humans, why we get to the end of our lives. Most of us, and instead of being like, yeah, yeah, look what we did. Let's die now. We're yeah. like, no, no, I don't want to die yet. I, I got, uh, there's more, you know, I, I didn't meet the thing I have to, or I gotta, I'm getting older. I gotta change this part of my face. I don't like the way this looks. Like, no, 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 you look old. You look older. Mm. Like, how badass is that? Your skin is sagging because you've lived your life. Like, mm. how, that's, that rules. Like, your yeah. body's changing based on the life that you've lived. Like, that is glorious. And instead, we fight tooth and nail against all that stuff because we're not, that's not our dream. We're living somebody else's dream, somebody else's concept. That's a profound point about how you know it's not working when you don't make sense to yourself. Because that's an indicator that you're prioritizing making sense to everyone else. Because when you don't make sense to yourself, everybody else can look at you and be like, oh yeah, you have this label, you have this job, you show up on time, you do all these predictable things, you're fine, you're great. And the price we have to be willing to pay to make sense to ourselves is to say, hey, I'm going to leave behind, right, without saying a word in order to start my new life. And so for me, man, I decided that I'm going to embrace being a loser in other people's eyes in order to be the hero on my own story. I'm going to embrace being an enigma to other people's minds in order to live the excited, enthusiastic life that I want to live. So I stopped living up to my potential and all the people out there who are disappointed in me, man, I love it. I embrace it. Keep that energy, but I'm loving my life. Whatever town you think I should be living in, whatever career you think would be living up to what God has placed in me, I don't want it. Yeah. I want to make sense to myself, not to you. Dude, because, yeah. and I say this, I say, they don't even see, they, they like books I don't like and they like movies I don't like. Yeah. And why am I basing anything on what they like? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, they, yeah. they think so-and-so is, a, they, it, you can see it on a very superficial level and then you can see it on a really deep level. Their idea of love is not my idea of love. Their idea of friendship is not my idea of friendship. Why am I basing any of my own self-worth on people who have completely different ideas about almost mm. everything in the world. Do you know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Like why I have to be the center of this, I have to be the pole that I come to. I'm true north. I'm my true north. To set it against anybody else is assuming that they think like you, do like you, act like you, and nobody does. You're unique. You are your own human. You have to follow your own path. I love that example, man, because... I noticed that ever since I was little, I would always like musicians that just weren't cool to my friends. And I'd play a song for them and be like, check this out, isn't that? And they'd be like, it's all right. And I, I discovered pretty early on that all the people I wanted to be like were idiots to my friends. Totally. Which means <laughs> if I succeed at becoming the guy I want to be, I'm probably going to be an idiot totally. to my friends. Right? I'm learning so much from both of you, especially that I've been masturbating wrong this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a Patreon live stream where we answer your <laughs> questions. By the way, 
Jacob, thank you for your question. If you have a lightning round question for us, you can send us a text, 937-202-4654. TK, we got to get, get you in on this. Um, those texts literally go to Ryan's and my phones. And we respond to a lot of people. When you, You've been to one of our live shows before. We ask people, how many of you have uh, texted with us in half the crowd? And we just respond to people whenever we can. So you can send us whatever you want, your questions, your eggplant emojis, whatever you want to send us. <laughs> 937-202-4654. We'll answer your question on the show or just send you a text message. Malabama, before we get to our other segments and our Patreon live stream, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi guys, uh, my name's Sally from Victoria, Australia. I wanted to share with you an app I heard about on Dan Harris's 10% Happier podcast. Ironic, I know, but I'm trying to reduce the apps I have on my phone, I swear, but I found this one to be quite meaningful. The app's called We Croak, and for 99 cents, uh, you get a reminder five times a day at random times that you're going to die. I know this sounds a little grim, but it has truly had a really positive impact on my day-to-day life. Overall, I I would say I've tried to embrace the goal of living my life according to my values, but on a daily basis, I know I can easily be troubled and distracted by the little things. Being randomly reminded throughout the day that I'm going to die has meant that in the moment, I'm not sweating the small stuff as much. I've noticed shifts in my behaviour in small ways, I guess, say getting off Twitter, um more quickly when I find that I'm down that rabbit hole. Uh, I'm putting down a book, say, that I'm not enjoying um, or even like lighting a favourite candle just because for no reason and not thinking that I should save it for another day. I don't know why I would do that anyway. Uh, Bigger reflections I've also noticed such as not caring so much about what people think. I found that I am moving on more quickly from mistakes that I've made. Um, And most importantly to me, it's really emphasized on a daily basis, the connections that I have with the people I love and how much I want to um, focus on, on those people. Hi, Ryan and Josh. This is Amanda from Melbourne. About a year ago, after listening to a few of your podcasts, I decided to start decluttering my house. I struggled getting started though, as the whole task felt too overwhelming. Luckily for me, I had a good friend who was in the same situation and we agreed to join forces. For the last 12 months, my friend Sam and I spent every Friday together, alternating between her house and mine, helping each other work our way through every cupboard, shelf and storage area. Some weeks have been really emotionally stressful. Some have seen us covered from head to toe in dust. But we have donated and thrown away hundreds of kilograms of no longer needed items and have had a lot of fun along the way. Welcome back to The Minimalists. We're here with Matt Nathanson. His new album is called Boston Accent. And uh, well, we're here with TK Coleman. Ryan Nicodemus isn't here. He's out meandering through the forests of somewhere in Montana, I believe. Jordan No More is here. Professor Sean, Malabama, Danny <laughs> Unknown. And joining us in spirit, uh, Jess Ness, Jessica Williams, uh, social Jess, we call her, Emma the Immigrant, and podcast Sean are all joining us remotely. And we're answering your questions. I wanted to get to this Talkaboutables segment. We this little segment called Talkaboutables, where it's just maybe a little current event or something for us to talk about or debate. Ryan and I walked out of the Emmys recently. 
TK, did I tell you about this? You didn't tell me about this. So our last film, which TK... You, you, you walked out, not went to. You walked out. We went to and then walked out. Yeah. So our last film hey. was uh, called Less Is Now. It's on Netflix. And to my surprise, I got an email one day that was nominated for an Emmy. And so now the minimalists are Emmy nominated, which sounds really awesome or whatever. It's a this achievement that I never strived for. It just sort of showed up. We wanted to make a beautiful film that resonated with people. And I felt like we accomplished that. Anyway, we get to the Emmys and uh, they sit us at the table with Matt Paxson, who's one of the um, hosts of the TV show Hoarders, which was quite funny. <laughs> and, and so we're, we're at the Emmys and we are watching the award ceremony. I apologize to Matt Diavella, our director. We didn't win the Emmy. We're sitting there watching the, uh, the series, or the, the ceremony, and they're giving out these awards for various you know, technical things and and we get to a point where they're giving out the award for the best advertisement. And I look over at Ryan and he looks at me and he goes, I don't think we should be here. <laughs> I looked at him. He sort of gave me the nod. We've known each other for 30 years. So he just gave me the nod and I stood up and he stood up and we both just beeline for the door <laughs> in our tuxedos. Yeah. I'm loosening the collar as we head to the door. And Matt, you've been to award ceremonies. I've seen you in pictures with ties on and, oh. and you know, the CMAs or whatever. And it's not that I'm, I think the Emmys are inherently bad or evil or anything like that. I think awards for art are a weird thing. Yeah. Because it's not an award for like the most album sold. That one is quantifiable. Totally get that, right? but best album yeah. according to whom? Because I can guarantee you, if I go back and look at the list of best albums, they're not on my list of best albums. Yep. So what you said about the Emmy is really what is the best thing about the Emmy is that you can say Emmy nominated. I would love to get nominated for a Grammy. Um, but, and, and I also enjoy a good ceremony where there's like, I go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremonies all the time. And it's fun because it's like, I get to watch musicians be musicians on stage. I get to watch like people talk about, they do speeches that are moving and then they get come together and you get to watch these bands play, you know, I've seen the cure, I've seen the chili peppers, you know, but, but the, but the award thing is like a circle jerk. It's like created by the company that then gives awards within the company. It's just a way for capitalists to sort it's you know and again i keep harping on this idea but it's a very capitalist idea like let's create a situation where we celebrate each other and we give out awards to who's the better one but we really you know it's like and it's all rigged and it's all dumb and it's all doesn't matter and so i used to love the grammys watching them and i still love them on a certain level because i love watching people play music and i love that kind of thing but yeah if it's not your thing like it it totally should I, I back it. I back getting up and leaving. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, because it doesn't, not only does it not matter, it's literally like, it's like you're make. it's just making things up. Like uh, an Emmy for the best, da, 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 and then these people got nominated and these people didn't. And there's a group of people in a room that make these decisions. And those people, like we talked about, those people wouldn't, I wouldn't want those people to decorate my bedroom. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or like, come tell me what, you know, it's like, so why the hell do I care what they think about my record? 
it's only fun because you could say like Grammy nominated and then that looks cool and people talk about it and it's like, it helps your brand. It helps move you forward in a cool way. Gives you legitimacy to people that need legitimacy in order to pay attention. I'll take a little bit of that. But like fundamentally, it's just a circle jerk. It's like people sitting in a room looking at each other being like, yeah, you look good. That's great. Keep going. And then like, yeah, should we let him in? No, don't let him in. How about her? Maybe. Yeah, let's let her in. Okay, great. And that's like, you're great. You're great. And it's like, it's a, it's like, I've sat on a couple boards in my life. Uh, I'm out on that too. Like, you know, boards for like schools and stuff. And, uh-huh. and uh, it just isn't my thing. It just feels like a big, it's just, there's no, it's just talking about things that don't need to be talked about. The award ceremony was, mm. was fine. Like we got dressed up in tuxedos and it's not my, my scene. It's not a thing that I like doing, but Ryan wanted to go. So I was like, Hey, we'll, we'll go to this thing. We'll sit down We'll watch the award ceremony, but it felt stiff to me. It's the opposite of what you do with your music, where your music feels so alive, but the ceremony celebrating the music can feel so dead in a way. Because it's not celebrating you. That's the point. It's like, even if you'd won, they're not celebrating you. They're celebrating themselves. Mm. And it's like, it's just a big, it's, and again, Throwing a party for yourself, I, I back it. You know what I mean? If that's what you want to do. And if for you, going was an experience where you're like, I've never been to the Emmys. This is cool. And then you go and you're like, oh, this is neat. I've had enough. I'm ready to be gone. Like, I back that too. But it really is not, the awards are not for us. They're for them to perpetuate them and their importance. You know, when they when you nominate a, uh, a, something for an Academy Award and it wins, is it really about because it's the best movie of the, I'm like, what? It's the craziest shit I've ever heard. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, so. Going with the throw up, it's like throwing a party for yourself analogy. If we map that on to winning an Emmy or a Grammy, it'd be more like hiring five random people who don't know you (laughs) to throw a party for you. (laughs) And then on the day of your birthday, nervously hoping that they actually decided to throw you a party. And then after the decision is over, you realize that, these were not people that you hired anyway. They were chosen for you. And so if they ignore you, you can't complain. <laughs> and if they throw you a party, it doesn't really mean what you thought it meant, right? It's just this completely random thing. It's not It's not something like a vote, right? It'd be one thing if if they said, hey, every year we're going to give awards and we're going to have two awards. We're going to have like the, the, the mathematical one where like the movie that sold the most, you get a certain kind of reward because that's a measurable achievement. But then we'll say, hey, look, all the moviegoers, Come out and vote this way, and then we'll have the most popular movie, right? The people's favorite comedy, the people's favorite drama. That would mean something, right? Because you get that award and you would say, all right, this means that I sold the most tickets, or this means that even though I didn't sell the most, there were a lot of people that were moved by my movie. And you can kind of make sense of it. But a lot of these awards, they're just sort of like these really elitist committees. We don't really get to know anything about who has the seat, who's making the judgment. Every year, there are complaints about who's represented in these seats. There, there, there are always um, disagreements over that. And um, there are always just categories that are left out for no other reason than that the people who make the decisions just don't respect that kind of movie or that kind of comedy as legitimate art, even though it sells a lot and the market is signaling that people love it. So I don't have a problem with awards per se, but as someone who actually loves award ceremonies and what they can represent in their highest form, 
I definitely uh, empathize with a lot of the criticisms that people make of, of how they're structured and how they're ran. And even to the advertising point, we've talked about this before. I love creativity and salesmanship. I love the art of creating value and then letting people know you have a product or a, or a service that can solve their problem. But the problem with the way advertising is set up is that it is feeding into this culture of fear where nobody's saying what they really think. Nobody's making the joke that they really want to make. Nobody's laughing at what they really think is funny. The people who are religious are afraid to actually admit what religion they follow. The people who aren't religious are afraid to admit that they disagree with your religion. We don't even know anybody anymore because advertisers are controlling the conversation, not coercively, but we're afraid that if I say what I really think about God, about sex, about how hilarious that joke was, Nabisco will no longer pay my check. That's and, why, you know, yeah. that, that, that's sort of a, a sad thing. And I'd love to see more creativity with how we produce and finance content. Yeah. I mean, scarcity, the idea of scarcity, that was the other thing in this podcast. The, we, we manufacture the idea that there's not enough, right? Yeah. That like um, there's a food shortage and it's like, doesn't Whole, whole Foods, someone said throws out, like each Whole Foods throws out X amount of produce at the end of every month that they didn't sell. That's not a shortage. You know what I mean? Like we just, we've created this idea of scarcity. And it's like, I'm not saying that there's not a problem in the chain of supply, but it's like when Whole Foods throws out $60,000 worth of produce at the end of every month, and that's one store, it's like, we're not, we don't have a shortage of food. Right. Do you know what I mean? But we create this idea. And it's the same idea of like, uh, well, award shows create that scarcity. And you were talking about sports. So I don't know anything about sports. I'm kind of a sports illiterate. But I think the most fascinating part about and uh, you can speak to this because you say you like award ceremonies, which rules. And if you, and you talked about the bulls and you talked about liking that stuff and there's sports have so much of that heaped on top of it. When really the thing that makes sports amazing, at least to me and probably to you is that it's these humans working at their sort of maximum potential sometimes and being just, be, uh, just incredible. Like watching somebody, well, I watch the Olympics and it's like, makes you cry to see a human being striving and working their, their, their machine in this way. Yeah. And it's like, it's the best. And I hate sport. I mean, I just don't like sport. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've yeah. never, but when I do, that's the thing I'm drawn to. Yeah. And I, and it blows my mind. And so is that the kind of thing when you talk about you like award ceremonies and that kind of stuff, is that like, you probably have had to wrestle with a lot of that in sports because it feels like sports is a lot of the stuff that isn't really important, but the stuff that is really important is like watching these human beings work as a team, as a unit, and like striving to be the best versions of the, themselves in that moment that they are. Yeah, that's it, man. You, you see in a lot of artwork and a lot of sports, some of the very essential elements that are a part of creating a healthy and fulfilling life. It's, it's saying, hey, I'm not going to let all of my challenges be things that life hands to me involuntarily. I'm going to go out there and do something just because it's really hard and because I probably can't do it. And then, and then after I get feedback from reality about why I failed, I'm going to cultivate and develop the strength and the skill to overcome this obstacle that I created for myself. And then we're going to celebrate yeah. together because it's all fun and we made it up anyway. And, <laughs> and that's just a beautiful thing about our humanity. And the more we can bring that approach to everyday life, the more we can participate in the creation of our own challenges and in the voluntary overcoming of them, the more joy we tend to feel. When we feel like most of our challenges are involuntary and being imposed on us, we tend to feel less in control. We tend to feel less healthy, less happy. But when we feel like we're doing things, like we're creating difficulties and challenges, 
we tend to be fulfilled. So I, I like that. And some of this stuff, it kind of distracts from it and pulls away. It doesn't make it bad. It just means that it's easy to get lost in the noise. That's the reason that we walked out of the Emmys. It had nothing to do with the celebration. I'm all yeah. for celebrating. And we can take every moment to celebrate. We don't need to wait for a specific night. It yeah. doesn't have to be next Friday. It doesn't have to be in prime time. It doesn't have to be in a tuxedo. We can celebrate whenever we want, however we want. The problem that I had with that moment is not even with the creativity within the advertisers. They were given an award for advertising. And advertising today, I think, is one of the biggest problems in our society. Mm. It's manipulating people. We often complain about cancel culture. You hear people can't. But it's not cancel culture. It's advertiser culture. Because if you weren't beholden to these major corporations to give you money, people are complaining because they're being demonetized by YouTube. I'm not because I don't monetize my YouTube. We have hundreds of thousands of people on our YouTube. We don't have a single commercial on there because I don't want to be beholden to Nabisco or Nesquik or whomever, right? Because as soon as I am, then I start tailoring what I do to fit them. You see people who are bleeping things out or they're changing things. They can't say sexual assault now. They have to say SA. Otherwise, they might get Censor. Well, doesn't that maybe dampen the thing that we're the serious thing that we're trying to talk about? You can't even talk about the things that you want to talk about. Why? Because Tide Pods might not be happy about it. And it's so, not that the majority of people are unhappy with it. It's not that all your listeners or most of your listeners are like, no, no, I can't stand you saying that word. It's that Tide is based on fear, right? They're like, well, if one person complains about it and sues us for it, that's a huge liability. So we don't need the majority of people to dislike it. We just need a fear that there might be one theoretical person who dislikes it. And that's enough for us to say, hey, don't make that joke. Don't say that word. Don't talk about that topic. It's not worth the risk. And it's like, okay, now we're doing things that are not a reflection of what our actual customers and supporters want. It's a reflection of our hypothetical concerns based on theoretical men. And taking it a step further, they don't really care that somebody's offended. They care. That's the, and that's really the fundamental problem because so they're corporations, good. which is they're not humans. We like to pretend that they are, right? Like we like to mix that up and be like, oh yeah, well, that's a very good core. It's like, no, it's a corporation. It's mm -hmm. not a person. But like corporations don't care if somebody's offended. They just don't. They care about how it reflects their bottom line. That's how it works, right? Like there might be some places that do things. And so when they, when 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 a corp when somebody edits something out of their life because they don't want to offend somebody, they don't care about the well-being of the person that they're offending, right? Because that fundamentally is we wanna we wanna be, if we can, not you know, comedians know and that kind of stuff, but we do have to it, you can take into consideration people's feelings, um, which we do. But like you can't live by them. But if you offend someone in a one-to-one -one conversation, you can sort of, like you said, curious, not furious, getting in there and sort of asking questions, being like, I'm sorry about that. Help me understand why. And that education process is part of what life is about. Right. But when you macro it out like we do, and people are offended by things that are coming through their Twitter feed and getting mad at Twitter, or my favorite was that when, when, uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and people were like, Matt, people were picking sides between Neil Young and Joe Rogan. It's like, dude, these are two multimillionaires who have no, don't give a shit about you. Mm -hmm. And like, you're spending your days like going back and forth about it. And it's like, 
I, this is, why are you wasting your time like this? You know what I mean? Like what, like just go live your life, your life, not Neil Young's life, not Joe Rogan's life, but we love that kind of thing. I, I'm getting kind of off no, this topic, is good, but man. the idea is like, yeah. well, we got to care about each other, which is, but, but like all things, they get, that gets twisted up and it gets perverted in a yeah. way. All power gets perverted by humans, right? Yeah. Like guns, sex, alcohol, drugs, technology, advertising. They, it's like, if people love themselves and could sort of like navigate the world by themselves, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be, th these things themselves wouldn't be the evil that they are. Technology's ruining. It's like, no, 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 human beings can't use power. They abuse power. Every time humans get power, mm -hmm. we can't handle it. It's too much. When we feel sex, sexual, uh, sex, se energy like that, we can't just have it be this beautiful thing that it is. It has to be weaponized or... Anyway, I'm getting way off topic, but the idea is, I, you know, it's it, you cannot ha you cannot expect a corporation to care about you because they don't. And what you can expect, though, is if you want the most bland version of what you're doing, then put advertisements on it because yeah. you were then forced to be bland. You're the only person I know with a radio hit, Matt, where the lyrics are. I see angels and devils and God when you come. You can't put that in yeah, a uh, yeah. in a song. I was days. always pretty psyched that one got through. I, I don't know how you did it, man. <laughs> and it's like I'm they they're not bleeping you out because generally if when you hear the we use radio yeah. song as a pejorative almost, right? It's like uh we call it Muzak, right? It's something you'd hear on an elevator or whatever. But like every time I go into Whole Foods and I hear Matt Nathanson's music. I, uh, I'm psyched. I'm like, oh, this is, this is great. Look, how did he get this? How did he get by with come this? Come in aisle six. <laughs> so, you know, one thing about the, the advertisements piece too is, and I think what you're speaking to is the generalized approach to advertisements, right? You want to see the most bland version of what you put out. You're beholding, you're beholden to, you know, Google ads, which is, you know, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know who, who's going to be interested in the ads and whatever. So you got to play by this general set of rules versus something like if there is a brand that I really believe in, I'm a consumer or a customer for their products. And I would tell people about them for free. And they say, Hey man, can we sponsor your, your 5k? Can we sponsor, you know, this event that you're doing? Can you wear our t-shirt? If it feels like, oh, I already did that before without you paying me. Mm -hmm. This is in total alignment with my values. Yes, I will happily promote you if you help make it possible for me to reach a broader audience or do what I do with greater creative freedom. But that's not how a lot of it works. A lot of it's so generalized that people don't know which advertiser specifically is the one that's financing them. And so they're going through this middleman like Google who says, hey, look, we got to be afraid of all of them. We got to be afraid of everybody. So the number one priority you got to keep is be interesting, but also be safe. <laughs> be interesting, yeah. but don't be yeah, dangerous. They make it impossible. They make yeah, it impossible it to be, difficult. you were talking about, I mean, comedians getting the brunt of all this stuff. It's like, we're living in a very conservative time and not in the true sense of like liberal conservative, but conserving, right? Like everybody just came through COVID and like being told that they're, they don't control anything and mortality. Here it is. Like you could die, blah, blah. And now everybody is like sort of low to the ground. And like, we're going to, we're living in a time where there's not a whole lot of bandwidth for people to care about other people as much. Everybody's sort of looking inward at themselves and not in a bad way sometimes, but sometimes in a bad way. We're living in this... I feel every time I turn around, people are like not 
there's there's not a whole lot of um, swath for people welcoming other, you know what I mean? Like, and it's because, you know, whatever, culturally how it's all gone, but COVID really accelerated that thing in a way. And so um, the idea of imposing that kind of stuff, it's more and more happening more and more because they're also losing power. So like television is losing power and well, YouTube is not, but the idea is that they're trying to keep as many people as they can. That's like their whole goal. And like you said, it's like it blands out the thing. And that's why I guess I'm going in a roundabout way. When they go at, when people go at comedians and they say like, you can't say that, you shouldn't say that. I, 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 I it's like, I get it. And I don't disagree. It's like, I don't agree with some of the things that are said and the way they're said, but we have to have, we have to live in an ecosystem where people say things we don't like and do things we don't like. And we have to be able to confront it and deal with it in a real way. And we're just at a place now where that's not our time. We're at least, it doesn't feel like we're at that time in our life. And I think it comes with great strides, great strides in gay rights. And that's why we're getting the kickback great strides. And then there's like the pendulum swings back the other way. And it's like, and it's tough. It's like, we have to let human beings be human beings and everybody, we have to let kids that trans kids have to be able to celebrate who they are. And at the same time, like we have to find a way to let people be who they are on the other side of that thing. And then there's that whole conversation about, well, if you're, if you're stepping on my rights that you don't deserve to do. And it's like, I just don't know the answer, but I feel like we're just in this tug of war between progress and digging in. And it's like, it's, it, I can't wait for it to be over. <laughs> I can't wait for everybody to kind of lighten up a little bit in the sense of like, sometimes you get to be so, it, it, those people, rigidity, we, okay, I'm just going to end my babble, but rigidity is the, is the wrong way in every situation. And so if you're rigidly feeling like this is the way it has to be, whether you are falling on the side of progress or falling on the side of not progress, it's like you're both in the same place. You have to be loose enough and have wiggle enough to understand that like human beings are going to do things you don't want them to do. And they're going to say things you don't want them to say and shit's going to go real wrong and real right. And we all have to coexist and we can't stamp out somebody for not believing the things we believe. And we, it's just like, we have to coexist in like the truest sense of the word. And I don't know right now, more than ever, we are having a struggle. People, people don't like people that believe in God. People don't like people that want to be, that, that are trans people. don't. It's like they, they vehemently believe that they're the enemy. And it's like, you can't be a team like that, you know? And, and ask somebody who practices organized religion, which is like the most evil thing today, right? Like it would be much cooler if I just said I'm spiritual. But yeah, I practice <laughs> no, organized no, yeah, religion, yeah. right? Um, I'm totally okay with the existence of people who think organized religion is BS. I think you're deceived. I think you're deluded. I think you're a complete idiot, right? I mean, I'm going to have to deal with that disagreement for just about everything else that I am and believe. The problem isn't that we don't like each other or that we don't disagree with each other but that we're in a culture that's moving closer and closer in the direction of characterizing the expression of disagreement as violence, yeah, yeah. the expression of disagreement as bigotry. And so now we're disconnected from this power that we have, this immense power that we have to get together and say, hey, look, I'm on this side of the debate. You're on that side of the debate. I think you're completely wrong. You think I'm completely wrong. But 
Let's talk about our assumptions. Let's talk about our premises. Let's talk about how we got here. Let's see what we can learn from each other. And at the very least, even if we walk away still disagreeing, we can agree to disagree without resorting to the violation of one another's individual rights to walk away freely. That's something that has to be fought for and protected. What makes a great world is not one where we all agree and see things the same way, but where we can accept the fact that we don't and still harmoniously coexist. Thousand percent. A th- I mean, a, a million percent. Yeah. It's like the team has to be made up of people that do things differently than everybody else on the team. Because if the team is made up of everybody that does the same thing, you're not going to get anything accomplished in any way. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's really tough. I have, uh, living in San Francisco, I have so many, uh, you know, uh, I always say, I, I always joke that I'd rather live around dumb progressives than dumb conservatives. That's like my thing. I'd rather live around kind of ignorant progressives because I feel like at least we're falling in a direction that feels like one. But it's well, at a, least you have good music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that there's some pretty good music on both sides. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the idea that like we just you can't it, you can't be so left that you're right, and you can't be so, you just can't you can't do any of that stuff. You have to allow people to. I mean, it's which all the stuff we're saying. You gotta allow people to be themselves, and like. We, I don't know where hate and stuff like that exists, like race. I don't know how you, but, but if you don't ask questions and if you're not curious and you don't get to the bottom of something when you can, then you're never going to do it. That's Mm. the only way to do it. Like what you said was so dead on. It's like, if you can't be curious and you can't look something in the face and ask a question, there's going to be no learning happening at all. And then if there's no learning happening, then nothing's going to change. You know what hate is? Hate is conditional love. So when I talk about love and seeing someone for who they are, well, what's the opposite of that? Wanting to change the essence of a person. I'll love you if you just do these 14 things for me in this sequence. And as soon as you don't do one of them, I cease to give you my love. Well, that's not love. That's like, and it's possible to dislike a piece of someone. Certainly, if you spend enough time with someone, you're going to dislike something about them. Their punctuality, their habits with biting their nails, their diet, the way that they grind their teeth at night, whatever it might be, you might dislike that, but you can still love the whole person. You can witness them. You can notice them. And that's how to love them. The hate comes from otherizing. Hate is really immature in a way because hate says, I'm going to change you because I blame you for some fundamental problem that is wrong with the universe, with the earth, with my life. It is your fault Mm. because you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're a Muslim, you're a Jew, you're a Christian, you're an atheist, and therefore you're something other. I blame you for my problems as opposed to, huh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. And I think when TK, when you approach things like that, all of a sudden, it breaks down the, well, have you been in Northern Ireland before? Like Belfast? You played in Belfast? No, there? but I've been. Okay. So they have peace walls there Be- because of the troubles that were going on in Belfast in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the, the troubles, right? A euphemism for essentially a sectarian war going on between Catholics and Protestants, right? And in order to keep the peace, they had to put up giant walls, yeah. the peace walls, yeah. because, well... I can't see you for who you are. I hate you, so I need to put up this wall, right? I need to cover you up completely. As opposed to, 
Huh, that's interesting. Tell me about that whole Catholic thing. That tears down the need for a peace wall. I mean, it humanizes the... I, I, I read a quote that I really liked that, um, uh, that says... It says, if you really care about the outcome and not just winning an argument, you will have to work with people you don't want to work with and maybe you don't want to even be in the same room with. And I think that that's like the key to everything. It's like, it's like we have to do this together. I need, we need each other. We are, we are in, we are alone, but we are, we are interconnected. And it's like, we need each other and you can't dismiss people based on something that they feel passionate about. You just can't. Like, I mean, you don't have to talk. You can, there's many ways to do it. And again, it's difficult for me. I'm only speaking from my own experience, but like you just, I just, it's a nowhere, it's a dead end to not, I have some of my best friends in the world are Mormon. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that I could not have a more opposed view of almost fundamentally everything that they thought, you know, at the time this was the Mormon church is sort of evolving like all, but like, and some of my favorite human beings on the planet believe something that is so exactly the opposite of what, to me, it's just like, what, what? Mm -hmm. like that is just not true. And if we get into it, I could be like, dude, I mean, come on, you know? And they'll be like, no, come on. And then it's like, come on. And it's like my best friends, like these people are, are just incredible humans. And it's like, that was my first real indicator of like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What's my fucking problem? Like, I got to get over this because I'm missing out on the beauty of other people based on my problem with one aspect of what I think they think. And when you start to see them, I, I've, uh, I've dated a couple Mormon girls, not at the same time. Uh, <laughs> and what I realized is like, there's, yes, you might have a particular belief, right? That is different from my belief. But remove religion from it. It isn't that true with the rest of our lives as well. Yeah. You believe that jazz is better than singer songwriter music. Okay. Yeah. Ice cream flavors. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. And and as opposed to being like, well, no, clearly the best flavor strawberry. Well, that's my perspective. That's the best flavor to me. What we're really saying when we say best, and that's when I had a problem with that question about superlatives earlier. What we're really saying is my favorite. Yeah. What's your favorite? meaningful experience? Oh, I can get behind that question because, and even then it becomes a superlative, right? And I have to be careful not to put it on a pedestal because then I measure everything else I do to that. And so finding a favorite in the present moment, like, oh, this can, this is my favorite now, but I have a new favorite now. It's going to show up real soon. Yeah. We do this little segment called advertisements suck because, well, they do. (laughs) And I, uh, we usually talk about a sucky ad on the podcast, but this one I, I that was really the enjoyed. Intro to this, that was that whole yeah. two hours. <laughs> I love it. Was the intro to this? That's where the Emmy walking out was <laughs> a setup. <for. laughs> I have a, a copy of. Do you remember Adbuster magazine? Oh yeah, from back in the day. Well, they still around apparently. And uh, this one is so they really just expose the pernicious nature of corporate advertising and the manipulation. And, well, the false seduction of advertisements. We were talking about this last episode, TK. We were, we were reviewing a Burger King ad, and he was trying to be really charitable. And I was showing... Uh, I was defending Burger King, man. Yeah. And that, <laughs> but that's what TK will do. He, will, he won't believe in a thing, but he'll find the devil's advocate, which makes sure. a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I love this ad here because, well, it is a generic ad for, like, some expensive. I don't know if it's a Cartier watch or... 
uh, paddock watch, whatever it is. It's this ad. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version here, and then I'll describe it. So it's just a regular ad here. And usually an ad is what? It's perfection. You see, oh, it's perfection amplified by our material goods. Whenever we have a live event, TK, and you're there, or Matt has been to at least one of our live events, he played some surprise music at one of the the ones in San Francisco. Um, And what you see, uh, when I ask the audience, describe a successful person to me. It's always a man wearing a suit and an expensive car, and they have a nice watch on. Because that is success. And yet this ad, there's a mosquito biting his wrist there. And you realize like, well, this is a metaphor for so many things. Like, what are these corporations trying to do? They're trying to, you know, suck your blood metaphorically. They're trying to extract money from your wallet to buy, to buy what? Time. You can buy a Rolex, but you're not going to buy more time. I see TK wants to is that engorged with blood? It does look like it, yeah. So this is an ad? Well, it's a art piece on top of an ad, is the way I would describe it. So Ad Busters is a magazine that sort of points out the manipulation through art. So I would call this a collage of sorts, where you have a regular ad, and on top of it, they've put a mosquito to show you the sort of, I don't know whether it's the intent or, you know, the... What's going on in the background? You have a, a a line, Matt, in one of your songs. I think it's a first line on one of your albums about uh, I don't want to see the the strings in the circus anymore. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is it. Like when you start to see what's going on, it's like no, I don't believe in the magic anymore. Yeah, where'd Santa Claus go? He's not real, and you start to realize that because. I became really successful. I grew up really, really poor. Dirt poor, Dayton, Ohio. Food stamps, government assistance, uh, abuse and drug abuse, alcohol abuse, physical abuse in the household. And I'm going to get away from this. I'm going to just make money and that's going to solve everything. And money certainly solved my money problems. Yeah. But it also created more money problems because I had bad habits, right? And so I became engorged with debt. And I was ostensibly successful. I had a really nice watch and I had several nice watches and nice suits. And so I had achieved everything, right? I looked like an advertisement, but it was all empty. It was like uh, if you have a house that is like infested with termites and then you try to paint the house, you're fixing the exterior, but the interior is rotting away. And that's what is going on, I think, with advertising. Nothing wrong with owning a nice watch. I I have no problem with that whatsoever. But if you think it's going to complete you or make you a better person, then, well... The advertisers getting what they want, but you probably aren't getting what you want. If we can go there, if we need to shelve it for a later time, that's cool too. But if we can go there, I love to hear you guys' thoughts on the role of critical thinking in the consumer in this process. Because in any two-way relationship, it's easy to characterize one party as the manipulator, especially if the other party is placing all their faith in what one party says, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, you know, imagine, for instance, if um, every time you and I go to the movies, I'm the one who's making the suggestion, right? And, and maybe like a few months down the road, you're like, TK, it's always about you. You're the only one that picks the movies and you're always making the suggestion. It's possible that I could also make the complaint of, well, you never made your voice known in this regard. You agreed with everything I suggested. Right. You never, you know, said that there was something else you wanted to see. And... 
I, I would challenge you to take some responsibility and actually making it an option for me that this is a, a decision that we make together, right? So it, it's, it's easy if you don't think critically about something or if you place too much faith in a person or you give them too much power, you can feel like they manipulated you when in reality, they were just kind of putting themselves out there, making a suggestion. So like, I, I look at this watch, like let's take the, the mosquito off of there. Mm-hmm. If I'm the watchmaker, and I believe in my watch. Yeah, and yeah. I think my watch is amazing and it's beautiful and it's durable and it's worth every dime. And I take a picture of it. I'm not going to pick a, um, I'm, I'm not going to pick a hand that's going to make people focus on the hand. Right. Right. I'm, ga- I'm going to pick my hand and my wrist based on what's going to draw attention to the watch. So I don't want this hand to look anything atypical. Right. And, 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 I'm, and, and if there's a speck of dust on my watch, I'm going to clean it off because I want people to see the watch in its best possible light. Mm-hmm. And I'm putting my product out there so that it can be seen. So- yeah. I'm I'm not going to accept the accusation here that I'm being manipulative, but I can see how someone can still look at my ad and be like, "Ooh, if I buy this, my life will be complete." And that is a problem. What role does the consumer play in creating this problem? The critical thought is the like you said is the key to all of this, and it's so rare and it's not taught and it's not something that and because just like I said about anything the power of this ad, we can't handle power, right? Like we want to, we want to like, we want to surrender to the idea. Like, like it's exactly what you said about how the watchmaker wants to show their watch off in a great light. What's wrong with that? And the problem is, is that it's like a few bad apples spoil the bunch because there are, there is manipulation going on within the, this is the bummer about all this stuff is that it's so, it's not black and white in this way that like, you know, the algorithms of Instagram or the way that Facebook moves, or that's like nefarious shit. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's used to like, like a dopamine hit in that way. And you unsuspectingly, if you're not a critical thinker, you can easily be swept up in that. And, and the problem is, is that, so you think from like, should a corporation have a moral high ground that they take because it's their job, right? As a, as a corporation that's influencing people kind of like, should a teacher take the high ground? I f- but no, it's not. Corporation, capitalism, the idea of like, uh, ideally, it would be great if every corporation thought, you know, this could be, th- but it's impossible, right? Like I'm agreeing with you, but I'm saying it in this way that like my, my, my most hippie self wants every corporation to look out for the people that buy the thing that they, that they sell. Right. And ideally, that's, that should be yeah. what it means to be in business, right? right? It would be ideal, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. It, but it's impossible because, um, because that's just not the way the thing is set up. It's just not the way humans think. That person probably wouldn't do that in their normal daily life, so why would they do it with the corporation that they do? And so the idea is, it's sort of like guns, and it's sort of like phones, and it's sort of like, you know, we vilify guns. And, and again, this is such a, it's not a black and white issue. But like the idea that a gun is the problem is not true to me. It just isn't true. The problem is the human that can't handle the power that goes with being a human in the world and that the gun is their way of, oh, this is like way longer and more. I mean, even the, even the, even the term gun control is really human control. Right. But, 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 (laughs) and it's like, but the problem is, is like, how do you look out for people who can't look out for themselves? This is like the part that you, we really have to do. I think it's sort of our moral, it's our moral obligation is like, 
how do you do your best to look out for people that aren't going to look out for themselves? And it's like, because most people, this whole conversation we've had is about how people can't look out for themselves. They literally, people are calling in and being like, I just can't look out for myself. All I keep doing is the thing I know is wrong, mm -hmm. but I'm smart enough to do it, but I'm doing it. Why can't I stop doing this, right? Mm -hmm. That's the fucking human problem. Mm. And it's like, and so when you have things that exacerbate that problem, I thought about it today. I was getting on the plane and there was like an Us Magazine thing was on the TV that was like above and it showed Kim Kardashian ruined a dress that was a Marilyn Monroe thing. And it, my immediate thing was like, what the, f my, my immediate thing was like, oh, what's going on with this? And then I went, oh dude, wait a second. I'm being manipulated by the situation. Who cares? We have literally people that can't, that are living on the streets. And like, why am I worried about what a billionaire is doing with some dead woman's dress? And then I was like, <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, this whole thing is, oh my God, fuck all this. Like mm. just f fuck it all. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. want to have any of it. And so I just put my headphones on and I put on some like jazz or some spa music or a record I love. And then I just kind of like looked at the person in front of me and I was like, oh, this person's, you know, and I just started taking in my experience as best I could. But it's this idea that we're, we are submerged on all sides by this thing. And it's like, I don't know the answer because I agree with you in like, like, and I agree with you. I think that it really is hand-to-hand -hand combat. Life is hand-to-hand -hand combat. I did so much work with people living on the street through the pandemic, and I tried so hard to like raise money and make things happen, and I found that, that, that certain people were sort of like not even in it for the right reasons, and then it was impossible to get people on the same. It was impossible to solve. And I was thinking to myself, this is a hand-to-hand -hand combat issue. We have to find, you have to find one person and ask them, what do you need? And if they can't even tell, you know what I mean? It's like, like you said, it has to be human to human. Like as best it can be in our life, yep. it has to come down to like, what are your needs, TK? And can I help you in those, in that way without breaching who I, you know, that makes me feel, how can I do that? And that's like the key, but we don't live in a world that works in that community way. We live in this humongous, broad, misinterpreted, technologically advanced place where things come hurling through space and you hear about a comedian talking about something on stage and I immediately go, what the fuck is wrong with that comedian? And then I go, what the fuck is wrong with that person talking? What is, you know, and then I just go, none of this matters to me. This is no, it's like, I'm sorry that the Ukraine is going through what they're going through with Russia. I think it's awful. And I, and I don't have the fucking bandwidth to deal with it. I can't. I can't. I am not equipped to give two fucks what's going on in the Ukraine. I can't. I didn't start it. I can't end it. I can't make shit happen. I can't send enough money to stop this. So like, I can't fucking pay attention to it because it drains my battery from like loving and teaching my kid about like how to be kind and how to be open and how to be, that's where I can focus my energy. It doesn't mean that I condone what's going on, but we live in this place where everybody's long throwing. And I felt the same way about like, I can't help these people on the streets unless I go there and I'm, and I find someone and I dial into who they are and I spend my, I make it my life to help this person figure out. And even then, I'm not going to win. It's like it, that it's up to that person once you, but, but, and, and then there's this thing about like what people get and what people don't get. It's such a complicated mess. And I just, and I find that as I get older, I have to just reduce more than anything what I intake. And that's critical thought too, in that way. You have to be critical about what you take into your body, whether it's food or information 
because yeah. it's impossible. It is fucking, it'll drive you bananas. You'll get so bummed out about something. Like the Roe v. Wade thing was, it's crushing on so many levels for me to see something that I believe should mm. be a right. For and But then at the same time, I'm like, how am I going to, I can't fix this. Like I can keep voting for people. I can give money to organizations that I think are doing the right thing. But like to have this consume my fucking life, mm. what's, I can't do it. It's going to make me hate everybody. It's going to make me want to get up and just swing when somebody tells me when Ken Johnson, my racist friend on fucking Facebook says something stupid, I just want to drive down to Florida and beat his ass. Mm. Like that's not going to help anybody. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like what we, I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do it. And people think that we do. Everybody thinks they can handle it. And, and I, I just kind of want to offer some commentary on the real meaning behind I can't fix this. Because some people, they hear powerful words like that spoken and they say, oh, okay, so you're just going to hang out with your daughter and spend time with her and focus on that. And you're going to ignore all these big issues because of some fatalist philosophy that says I can't fix this. And it's like, no, no, no. Right. Any kind of problem. We can fix it, but we got to get back to reality and respect the fact that we can't fix these problems on Twitter. Wait, we can, right? Right. right? right. The way we fix problems is this very unsexy, boring process that we're using Twitter to run away from by seeking out solutions that take long-term investments in our health and in the health of our families. And when you give that attention to your daughter, you're not saying, oh, I'm just going to focus on this. It's it, You're recognizing that, hey, if I focus on trying to fix the world's problems through Twitter, I'm not going to have anything left for my daughter. Not only that, but yeah. if I do give this to my daughter, I'm going to send this grenade of like positive, right. loving, right. self-aware, critical thinker into the universe where she can then uh, do what she can do. And that's all we've got. I don't give a shit who the fucking president is. And I hated Donald Trump, but it's like, why did I hate somebody who didn't? It's like, yeah. it, it's just like, yeah. it's just like, Get, get this, for me, it was just like, I have to shut this person out. I have to shut this person out and I have to love my family and I have to f love people around me and I have to be kind to people and I have to be understanding of people that don't agree with me and I gotta be understanding of people who I don't agree with and that is the only way I can extract, I can make change happen in my life yeah. instead of swing. It's like I do this all my time with my career and not to just, but like I'll think like, I gotta be more on TikTok. I gotta do this more. I gotta, and it's like, mm. just write the fucking song. Do you know what I mean? Just like, just write the song. And then that's the thing. When people hear a song that moves them, that has so much more of a stick and yeah. an effect. And it's the thing I actually love doing. <laughs> Isn't it funny so that, that we quite often push off the thing that we enjoy the most? Yeah. I do this all the time because I'm a completionist. So the laundry needs to be folded and the dishes need to be done. And maybe I need to mop the floors and I can find every excuse to not write. And all of those things are making me miserable. But the thing that actually ceases the misery doesn't get rid of it, but ceases it in yeah. the sense that it puts me right here in front of those words is writing. Yeah. In control of the thing you can control. That's right. Right. You yeah. can, like you can control folding laundry, order, but like the thing that's going to, that's going to move you forward as a human in your thing that you want to move forward in is writing like mm -hmm. that. And that's what you need to do. Yes. It's like, that's it. Uh -huh. The only way you're going to yeah. be successful at whatever and successful is about the only way you're going to move forward is by doing the thing you do that moves you forward. Alabama, yeah. let's check in with the live stream real quick. What kind of questions you got for us? We have a question here from Lauren. She says, my dad just gave me a large box of my late grandmother's sheet music 
and I decided to only keep two of her books. What resources are available for donating old music books? Now, Mal, you used to work in a, uh, a store that... Well, you have... Uh, I'll let you talk about the backstory here. So you, you're uniquely qualified to answer this question because I certainly am not. Although I don't know if Matt has any sheet <laughs> no, music. No, I'm just, I'm a throw it out person. So like I literally, <laughs> I threw out, so I gave away a lot of shit to like people on next door. At and my, that's beautiful. Like stuff. It's my favorite thing to do. Touch it once, I say. It's like, we haven't seen this thing. Uh, I'm not, who cares? Yeah. So uh, oddly enough, the job that I held before this one was as a sheet music specialist. So I was giddy when this question came in. (laughs) Wow. Um, So the thing with sheet music, loose sheet music papers are practically worthless once they're printed out and they're not attached to an anthology. No one can resell them. No one's really looking for them unless they're like autographed by some qualified or famous composer. Hmm. But the anthology books can be used sometimes by used bookstores and libraries. Sometimes they have things set up to where they can actually check them out for budding musicians. Another great resource is to reach into all of your public schools, universities. That might be audition material for students that are wanting to go into college or even just put something together for their concerts. Um, Another thing you can do is actually reach out to music organizations. Two that come to mind for me is FIMU Alpha and Sigma Alpha Iota. Uh, they are fabulous and do a lot of work in the community. But ultimately, there are going to be some parts that nobody wants. And even if you go to like an, a little elementary school and say, hey, do you want some sheet music for arts and crafts? And they go, ah, oh, no, thanks, we're good. That's okay. You are allowed to throw it away. The music does not die on the paper. The music stays with us. And the, mm. and the person, yeah, that's totally right. And the person whose stuff it was is already dead. Yes. And so it's like, they're going to be with you no matter if you have their fucking papers or you don't have their papers. That's the part that's so crazy. Exactly. I just, yeah. Yeah, and I don't care if Matt Nathanson wrote Bill Murray on his iPhone or on a loose leaf paper or on a napkin at a hotel somewhere. Mm -hmm. The fact that you wrote that song and it makes my wife cry every time that she hears it. And it's just like, it's just this really profound moment. Um, The sheet that it was written on. That, that is simply, uh, yeah, I talk to writing students about this. I teach a writing class called How to Write Better. We often confuse the instrument with the creation. Mm-hmm. If I just buy the right Gibson guitar, then I will be John Mayer or whatever. And it's yeah. like, well, no. Not unless you practice. Right. And even then you won't be him, right? And even if you follow the steps that he followed, you won't be him because there's an essence that's deeper than the prescription, then the how-to, then the methodology of it all. Yes, you might get better through the the practicing, but yeah, you'll learn something from him and using the same instrument. But I wouldn't get caught up in what pencil Stephen King used to pin Carrie or whatever it was. Hey, Josh, you mean if I wear Nikes, I can't jump high or run fast? <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll, you'll never be Matt McClung. <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on to some social media questions real quick. You can follow The Minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at The Minimalists. It looks like we have a question here. Actually, this one's from YouTube. Just C has a question for us. I'm an extreme minimalist, and I'm frustrated that I'm paying to store a few items while I'm in between houses for the next three months. I'd hate to sell my favorite things, but I feel like I'm wasting my money. Any thoughts on storage? We tell ourselves these stories, right, that conflict with one another. I'm an extreme minimalist, but I also have a storage locker. Just see, I can tell you this. If you are an extreme minimalist, you probably don't have a storage locker. 
I'm not an extreme minimalist. I'm a minimalist, but I don't see minimalism as being extreme. I see minimalism as sort of the natural state in many ways. I, I will say this though. So we get caught up in those definitions. I'm an extreme minimalist. I'm a type three hoarder, whatever it is, right? And you are defined by who you are, not by the things you own, right? And also the same thing is true with, you're also not defined by the things you don't own. If I own fewer things, I'll be a better person. No, you are you regardless of the things you own. The question is, the things that I have around me, do they augment my experience of life? If so, wonderful. I wouldn't encourage you to get rid of them. In fact, keep your storage locker if they augment your life. Now is the perfect time to start questioning those things, though. Because if you're going to use them a few months from now, why deprive yourself of those things? Like if I went to Matt and got rid of all of his studio equipment, all of his guitars, I would make his life markedly worse. Now, it doesn't mean that you couldn't do an experiment for a period of time. Matt, it might be really helpful to say, I'm taking all of your instruments for 30 days. And during those 30 days, but I really miss this one. I miss this one. And you come back at the end of 30 days and you're like, you know what? I didn't miss that, that, or that. Huh. Maybe the things I thought added value to my life don't actually add value. I can let those go. But those other things, man, these really enhance my life. Let me, let me hold on to that. Yeah, the idea of being an extreme minimalist but holding on to uh, feeling badly that you have a storage locker is sort of counterintuitive, right? Like the first thing you should get rid of is feeling badly for having a storage locker. You know, and then it's like, that's the real superfluous bit in yeah. that whole thing. That's right. Yeah, there's sort of a conflict there, right? Hey, I have an identity as a minimalist and I'm doing this thing that conflicts with my concept of the identity. Help me resolve that contradiction. You don't have to let go of the stuff, but I would say let go of the identity. Be who you are. If minimalist is an accurate description of who you are and how you live, let other people call you that. And sure, when it makes sense, you can refer to yourself as that as well. But don't be attached to that label, I am a minimalist, in a way that causes you to judge yourself by having more than a certain amount of things or by having a storage unit. The other thing I would say, too, is that you know how much you love something when you have to pay for it, and you know how much you love it by how much you're willing to pay for it. And so I would just you know, apply what I call the casino technique. When you go to the casino... My advice is if you're going to go in there and you're going to gamble away your money because you think that's fun, that's up to you. But just determine your number ahead of time. What's it going to be? What's your stopping point? Is it $50? Is it $200? How much are you willing to lose? And when are you going to stop? Because you know what's going to happen when you get in that casino? You're either going to get a hot hand and feel like you're limitless and you're just going to come out of there with a million dollars or you're going to get in a hole and lose something and you're going to feel like I got to keep going to dig myself out of the hole. So determine your number ahead of time. And then when you get to that number, you know what to do. It's the same way with your stuff. You decided to put something in storage because it mattered enough to you to at least put it in there for a day. If it's starting to hurt, then that means you've got something going on within you telling yourself, hey, this is valuable to me, but it's not infinitely valuable. How much more valuable is it for you to hold on to it? Is it worth a hundred more dollars? Is it worth a thousand more dollars? Determine your number. And once you get there, let it go because then it's going to cost you more than it, more than it actually benefits you if you don't. The price of holding on to it right now is a lot. It's high. It's not just the price of the storage locker, but it's the psychological cost, the right. mental clutter that it's mm -hmm. causing, the emotional, the heart clutter. 
that you're experiencing because you feel this incongruity. I am this type of person and yet I'm doing this. Well, that's we've been talking about expectations today. That's one of the things here. I've set this expectation. A extreme minimalist is who I am as a person and therefore I shouldn't have a storage locker. Okay, fine. Well, then get rid of the storage locker. But is that really going to help you? Maybe. But if you get rid of the things that are in the storage locker that serve you, then you might be worse off. And so sometimes it just has to do with telling ourselves a different story. Yeah. Yep. And the idea of wiggly, what we talked about, rigidity versus wiggly. It's like being rigid costs so much. And it's like saying, this is who I am, but this is in, 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 they're not working together. And it's like, yeah, because you're just let it go. Like let your identity go in that way. The idea and just be right now you have a storage locker with your stuff in it. Okay. You know what I mean? And then next step. And, and hey, look, I, I don't, I don't address this unempathetically. Oh yeah. You know, uh, I gotta I, be empathetic. I, I just, no, no, no. I'm not <laughs> contrasting with you. I'm saying I just completed a cross country move and I can say a considerable amount of my things arrived broken, chipped, mishandled, damaged, or some things were just lost altogether. <laughs> and it's incredibly frustrating. But one thing it makes me appreciate is the fact that before I left, I got rid of about half of my stuff. And I'm thankful that I'm not experiencing that anger and frustration over that stuff. Because if I still had that stuff, I would be even more angry. I would be even more frustrated. And so the more things you have, the more things you have to worry about. And sometimes, you know, the fastest way to peace is to assess the costs, take an honest look at the stress holding on to something is causing you and saying, let it go. You know, just let it go. And if it's the type of thing that makes you say, but no, no, it really means a lot to me. Well, then just own the choice that you're making to pay for it and don't condemn yourself. Don't look at it as being inconsistent with some identity you have. I'm reminded of something Jay Krishnamurti said when he's talking about acceptance. And what you're t- it reminds me of what you're going through right now. He said, whatever happens, I don't mind. And just that alone, like something is going to happen undoubtedly something's going to happen and you can interpret it as good, bad, whatever, but whatever happens, I don't mind. If we can find that place, because we're not always going to be there. We're going to mind. We're going to get pissed off. We're going to get angry. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to get upset, but realizing that it's also possible to react differently. It's possible to not mind because something happens to me and Matt doesn't know about it. He doesn't mind because he doesn't even know about it. Yeah, And even if he does know about it, he's not going to mind the same way that I mind. And so it is possible for me to not mind or at least to mind it a lot less yeah. than I do right now. That was what TK yeah. was saying about play. It's about play. Yeah. Like we're really, it, we don't play enough. We see things as sort of these life or death things. And it's like, if you see it as a game and you see it as kind of play, then sometimes you, sometimes you make shots, sometimes you don't. Sometimes things work the way you think they should. Sometimes they don't, and you can learn from them. And sometimes, you know, it's the key. Should I go home and take my damaged furniture and just play? Just like take a baseball bat, crack it, <laughs> half, like, ha, ha, look at that. I did a better job at ruining it than the movers. <laughs> uh, that sounds terrible, by the way. <laughs> we got another question from Twitter. Daniel has a question for us. Oh. <laughs> Have you done any work around minimalism and education for children? Well, sort of. We are working on this thing right now uh, with the folks from Ramsey Solutions. We are trying to, well, promote financial literacy because I think it's one of the biggest problems that we have 
is we go to school, we're taught to build a credit score, to go into debt as soon as you turn 18 by getting six figures or five figures worth of college loans. And all of a sudden, before we know it, we turn around, we're 30 years old with six figures worth of debt. So the average American household that is indebted has $97,775 in debt. And so what is that? It's credit card debt. It is automobile debt. This school debt. That's non-mortgage debt, by the way. So we're facing six figures worth of debt before we even start living our lives. And then it keeps us from what? Living our lives because now I feel tethered to this lifestyle, right? And so Ryan and I, we've been working with the folks at Ramsey Solutions to provide, well, financial literacy training for every high school student and every middle school student in Dayton, Ohio. So a quick plug for that. I don't get any money for this, but you can help contribute. 25 bucks gives curriculum to one middle school student, 45 bucks to a high school student, theminimalists.com slash education if you're interested. So that's my plug for helping some kids out so they're not borrowing from their future. Because ultimately, that's what we're talking about. I don't think, and we may differ on this quite a bit. TK has worked with a lot of students. I don't think we have anything to teach our kids. And, and here's what I mean by that. I want to be get really specific here. I think that minimalism is sort of the natural state for human beings. We've complected our lives. We've added all this complexity to our lives through expectations, through consumerism, through careers, through career paths, through whatever material goods we think we should have. And just societal constructs, basically, saying, here's what you're going to do, and then you're going to be happy, right? And so I want to help my daughter avoid those things. But I don't have anything to teach her in the sense, like, I never taught her how to bend her elbow. She just figured that out, right? You create the environment so that she can do these things. I never taught her how to um, eat food. I didn't teach her how to get hungry. No, that, that happens. That appears on its own. Now, of course, I'm not saying we don't add boundaries for our kids. We certainly have to. I can't say when she was three years old, you can't just go play out in traffic. You know, good luck with that. No, there are boundaries that we set for our kids. But in terms of teaching, I think it has much more to do with setting up the environment. Now, we don't send Ella to public school anymore just because I found that that, that route was poisonous. And, and so we've removed her from, from that system that wasn't working well for her. And, and so, well, why it wasn't working well? Because in that environment, she was not thriving. Her personally, not every kid, but her person, she was not thriving. So removing her from environments that in which she doesn't thrive, it doesn't mean we remove all the obstacles. I'm not going to bubble wrap her world. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Yeah, you can climb a tree as long as I don't have to lift you into it. You can climb as high as you want because you'll figure out how to get down if you climbed it yourself. Yeah. Socrates saw education not as the process of imparting that which is not known into the heart and mind of the student, but rather unearthing what already exists in that person's soul, helping them recollect what they always knew. Sometimes we know things, but then we get away from what we know because of societal pressure, because of different kinds of influences that result in us mistrusting ourselves or losing that self-love. And so the best educators are the ones that help you recall what you natively know. It's sort of like um, teaching a balloon how to float. You just can't do that. A balloon doesn't need you to teach it how to float. However, if someone took a string and tied a stone to that balloon 
you'll find that the balloon actually is capable of sinking. And your job as the educator is to come along and cut that string to remove the stones that hold the balloon back from doing what it is part of its nature to do. And so I believe that students are capable of thinking for themselves. They're capable of more great things than they could possibly imagine, but they're weighed down by the stones of so many self-defeating fallacies that they've picked up already at a very young age. And so one of the ways I go into classrooms and teach this as the education director at FEE is I help students make that shift from the consumer mindset to the creator mindset. Because when you think about all the good things in life, you can't consume them. You can't consume happiness. You can't consume love. You can't consume fulfillment. You have to create happiness. You have to create fulfillment. You have to create an amazing career. You have to create a wonderful lifestyle. But consumption isn't bad. It's a part of being human. We have to take the resources of the earth and use them to meet our needs. But consumption is only fulfilling when it's contextualized by a life of creativity, which is why when you consume without creating, you tend to be more depressed and you tend to lack the joy that comes from being able to create wealth. And so what I do is when I talk with students, I say, look, consuming is a part of life, but what becomes of the possibilities of your life when you think of yourself as someone more than just, you know, wanting that pair of shoes? Do you know that the power exists in you to create something just like that, or maybe even better than that, that another person can put on their feet and their feet can feel really good. And they say, wow, this is the best pair of shoes I ever had. Like, do you know that that potential exists within you? And maybe it's not shoes. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's fashion. Maybe it's something completely different. Your soul knows what that is. My job is to remove the stones that keep what is within you from coming to the surface. And I believe that's really the essence of what this is all about. Yeah. I mean, I agree with, but I read somewhere the idea that knowledge is like, uh, that information, we seem to think that uh, getting, gaining information is the way to be when all it really does is sort of uh, not to keep harping on the idea, but it, it gives us expectations and rigidity in the way that mm -hmm. we are instead of uh, knowledge through experience and, and growth in that way of becoming who we actually are, um, being kind of pumped full of information. We, in the information age that we live in, it's all empty calories, you know, because really the thing is uh, knowledge comes from experience and from learning and then that's really what we're looking for. So as teachers, I feel like it's my job as, as a parent to be the best, to allow my kid to become the best she that she is, you know, the, and truly like it's, it's, that's my whole goal. Like you said, to remove anything, to try and help her remove any obstacles that get in the way of her fulfilling who she is. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm gonna put this out there. Josh, I don't know if I'll get in trouble, but I will come to your high school for free and I'll talk about this if we can make it work, right? Like get as many people together as you can so we can make it count as opposed to like me trying to hit up a hundred high schools to talk to a handful of people each time. But if you can get together hundred plus people, high school students, and you want me to talk about this, I don't know if I'm getting in trouble for this on my first day on The Minimalist, but I will come in there myself and I'll talk about some of these things for free. I won't charge you a dime. Yeah, just send an email, podcast yeah. at theminimalists.com. Mallory, will, we'll get that over to us for sure. Uh, by the way, uh, we got a bunch of segments, several of which we're going to skip today just for the sake of time. We went way over oh, because man. we went over Matt's entire <laughs> album. So good. But I do want to wrap up with something we call Amass It or Trash It. I texted Matt over the weekend 
And I said, hey, man, is there anything you're struggling to let go of? So Mallory, you can put your cards away for now. We'll get to them on a future episode. <laughs> and often we talk to people. By the way, if you have something, you can also send us an email. Podcast at theminimalists.com. Something you're struggling to get rid of. And Ryan and TK and I will tell you whether or not you should hold on to it or let it go. Amass it or trash it. And I texted Matt and I said, is there anything you're struggling with letting go? And he said, yeah, my self-doubt. Ooh. Let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's the, just to really quickly to circle back to the idea, I do think it's the teacher's job to teach uh, compassion. And I think that, that that kind of thing, I wanted to circle back to that real quick. Didn't mean to sort of veer off, but I believe it's the teacher's job to teach compassion and critical thought. And, uh, and uh, the only way we can sort of infiltrate our children is through parents and through teachers. And so to, we got to fill them up with as much uh, self-love and understanding as we possibly mm. can. Um, and self-doubt, this ties into the idea of self-doubt. Um, it, we've talked about this the whole time, but like, I can't believe how, how I am the creator of all the things in my life that don't work. Oof. I can't believe how potent a truth that is. Yes. It drives me crazy. Just like that woman that we had on the phone who was like, I know these things, but I do these other things. I have the same problem where it's like, I know if I could just get up and say, Hey man, like you're beautiful today. Like you're doing your thing. You got this. I, I get jealous of a kid that I see on TikTok. I live in a house in San Francisco with my wife and my kid and I get to travel around and make music. And I, and I have fans like that for years and you know what I mean? And like, and I'm jealous of a kid who has more TikTok views than me. Like what a asinine way to live your life. Do you know what I mean? And that's the kind of thing that I, that's a one version of what I do on the, on the regular, like just creating problems because I don't believe that what I'm doing is worthwhile or that I am worthwhile. Mm. And like, if I could just lean into that and be like, I'm me. And I'm, and that's great. And like the, my, def, the things that I see as deficiencies are actually, these are my superpowers. These are the places, this is what makes me uniquely me. And like, let me just do that. But instead I have these expectations about what the market wants for these songs and how I want things to work and how other people interpret who I am. And if this doesn't do that, then is that going to mean, and it's like, I live low to the ground I provide for my family. My family provides for me. Together, we are this ecosystem. And it's like, it's pretty magical. And like, but I can get pissed off about a kid's Twitter number or, you know, in, uh, TikTok numbers. And it's like, not, to me, that is just such an amazing thing. I'm, th I'm 30 years into a career. You know what I mean? Like my wife and I love each other and we live in the most expensive, like that we live in a city, we survive in this city of, I get to have a bus with a crew and I get to play music with people who play music with me. I get to go in the studio and pay for it. And we do this. It's like, I get to do all the things I want to do. And I'm jealous of a kid's TikTok numbers. And it gets in the way of my joy of experiencing. I'm getting in the Uber. I'm coming to the airport. I'm getting on a plane. I'm coming down. How cool is this that I get to do this? Instead, I'm like, well, how do I make my TikTok numbers? How can I do this better? And it's like, uh, and then I just have to stop and critically think and be like, dude, check yourself, like step back, put, put down the, put down the silly string that you're shoving up your nose. Mm. And that's it. It's like self-doubt is really the enemy of all my, it's really my thing. And it's tough because we say this, but we come from where we come from is so important. And, and if you're never given the tools, 
If the only way you know how to put a window in is with a sledgehammer, it's like you're going to smash every window you ever had. And then it, it's so important that you meet the right humans in your life mm. and that you're able to decipher that that person is necessary. And then that you are able to get from a, from a, like a relationship perspective, that you're able to get the thing that you need. I was so fortunate to find my wife at the time that I did. But I also recognized that she was important in, my, in all of my stupidity and all my sort of brokenness. Some part of me recognized like this is a life raft human. And it's like, some people don't get that. Some people spend their whole lives making the wrong choice based on the way that they've been traumatized. And mm. this is where there's so much more need for empathy, right? The idea that like, we don't, there's this great story. There's, this person said there's victims on both sides of the gun, mm. which I thought was just the greatest thing. It was about this guy whose son had been shot by another kid. And he went every week to see this guy, this kid in prison. And he would sit with him and talk to him. And then when the kid got paroled, he did something again and went back in prison again. And this guy showed up again. And this was an old man by the time this whole thing worked, but he showed up for this kid. And he said, and someone asked him like, why did you do this? This kid shot your kid. Do you know what I mean? He said, well, there's victims on both sides of the gun. Why would I, you know, and it's like, it's true. And we don't want to see it. We don't want to see the damage that like, not to say that, that but like it, when my mother died, I'll use an example in my own life. You know, we had a terrible, we didn't speak for a decade. And when she died, I was like, I was so heartbroken that she had spent her life. Like I was heartbroken that her circumstances, that she couldn't get out of her own way that she like died fighting a war with the world that she created herself. You know what I mean? And it's like, and some people would disagree with that. My sister would be, you know, uh, she was great. You know, it's like my mother literally couldn't get out of her own way and she wouldn't know. You could give her love on a fucking platter and she wouldn't take it. Mm. And she would turn it and make it sharp and turn it back on you or turn it in on herself. And it's like, this, these are the places where we don't have to condone those actions. I never spoke to her. I didn't speak to her because she was so to toxic for me. But it's like, that being said, it didn't stop me caring and being like, what a heartbreaking way to do your life. And so then what I say to myself is, I'm not going to do that to myself. And that's really all we got is like, so every time self-doubt shows up, I say, dude, am I cannibalizing my now for some sort of bullshit idea that was put in me when I was, you know, four and, and heavy set? Like, oh yeah, yeah, it was. All right. But it's a constant, that's real work. It's so much, it's, it's as much work as having expectations for people or hating people, but it pays you back. Actually, it's the same amount of effort, but it pays you back as opposed to getting mad at, you know, the sun for shining. Mm. Am I cannibalizing my, because of some decision I made years or, ago, or was made on me, was made on me, you know, yeah. that, that, that that molded fingers that came in and kind of molded my cerebellum and yeah. made me think like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, this is how it works. Yeah. And then some people never get, never find anybody who can come and be like, like you just said, I'm willing to do like, I, I want to show up. Let me show up. We need human beings to show up for each other. And it's really difficult, especially now post the pandemic. So Matt, you got a brand new album out and it's an outstanding album. It's called Boston accent. Also I should tell folks that, you're now on Patreon and you're one of those musicians who actually uses it in a way that is really effective. Every Monday you're putting something out, including 
today, the day we're recording this on a Monday, you just put out a new video that you played an acoustic version of one of your new songs. And you're doing these Monday morning missives. Yeah. And it's awesome. I want to encourage folks who are listening to this to check out your Patreon as well. If you want to support someone, this is one of the best ways you can support them. And I can't help thank you enough for the help that you gave me. I mean, like you were critical. Talking to you about it made me understand it in such a different way. And the way that you guys do Patreon. And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This can be great. This, this can actually be this amazing community that I build uh, and it was, the, it was, it was really inspired by watching what you've done and talking to you about it. It was just, it's just awesome community, man, it, on, on whatever level that you can get outside of the grand thing and come a little micro. It's, mm -hmm. it's awesome. People are collecting themselves when you say community, it's this collective of people who have a similar interest and it's, I really enjoy Matt's music, but it's so much more than that. I connect with other people who enjoy your music. I connect with you in a way that you wouldn't see otherwise. And it's different from what you see on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. There's a depth there. It's fine when we do things on YouTube or RSS feed or whatever. It reaches a broad audience. But the difference with Patreon, whether it's Matt's Patreon or The Minimalists or any other creator that I support, is there's a particular depth. You, you are signing up to go deep with that person or that entity, that group, whatever it might be. And I'm really enjoying your Patreon. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, or you can find it over at mattnathanson.com. And of course, you can find his tour dates over there as well. How many? You're doing a bunch of cities coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. It's been pushed off four times, so we're ready to hit it. It's going to be fun. I'm psyched. The whole U.S., pretty much. Yeah. All, all the dates over at mattnathanson.com. If you find yourself uh, in L.A., and uh, you want to see him at, I think you're at the Ace Theater, the theater at the Ace Hotel. Yeah. 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 You'll, you'll run into the minimalists there as well for our added value this week. I got to do this. You, here's something you don't know about TK. So TK, we've already listened to your whole album. So I'm, my added <laughs> yeah, yeah. value segment is usually like I recommend a song or something sure. that's going on, uh, a movie, a book. But TK listens to Christmas music every day of the year. Tell me about this psychosis that you have going on, TK. Or tell tell Matt about it. Look at his face. <laughs> I'll, t I'll, I'll tell you where it came from. I'll tell you where it came from. I love it, though. My Uncle Cleet. <laughs> Hear me out. My Uncle Cletus Coleman used to own this uh, furniture store on the south side of Chicago, the corner of a major intersection called Custom Corner. And every year around the holidays, he would pimp this store out, fill it with Christmas trees, have Christmas like decorations and everything. And it felt like you were at the North Pole when you visited that store. So I always associated him with Christmas because he was very jolly and just really good to his customers. When he died, I remember just having a moment where I put on a Christmas song just to kind of connect with him, you know? And it was a moment where like, Uncle Cleet, this is for you. And I felt like in that moment, by playing that song, I kept him alive in me. And so every day, and I don't talk about this part of the story a lot, but every single day, at least once in that day, I play at least one Christmas song and it's my head nod to Uncle Cleet because he believed in me more than anybody else. He always had my back, always knew how to make me a lot, make me, uh, make me laugh. And so when I play Christmas music, it's my way of keeping him alive and the spirit and energy that he represented alive. And for me, you can, you can try this as a test. Try to put on Christmas music and not feel a lift in vibration. 
You know, you can take any other form of music and put it in a horror movie and it just works so perfectly. It, it, it doesn't ruin the horror movie. It doesn't make the horror movie feel campy or cheap. You can take children's music and it works. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. You can take church music and chant and put it in horror movies and it makes it work. It makes it better. You put Christmas movie, music in horror movies. It's been done before. It makes the movie a little bit more cheesy, a little bit more campy, a little less scary because that Christmas music has a powerful vibration that just infects everything with levity. And so that's why I play it every day, man. Every day I represent Christmas. And cleat. And cleat. I mean, that's the best part that yeah. you that you had a relationship with him in that way yeah. is the coolest part. It's yeah. badass. Well, this song is from my daughter's favorite Matt Nathanson album. The album is called Farewell December. He has a whole Christmas Ooh. album. And uh, so, TK, this is for you. This is for Cleet. This song is called River by Matt Nathanson. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Matt Nathanson, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. It's coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees. They're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. But it don't snow here. It stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money Then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene I wish I had a river I could skate away on I wish I had a river so long I'd teach my feet to fly I wish I had a river I made my baby cry She tried hard to help me You know, she put me at ease She loved me so naughty and Made me weak in the knees Well, I wish I had a river I could skate away so hard to handle you know I'm selfish and I'm sad and I've gone and lost the best baby that I ever had I wish I had a river I could skate away I wish I had a river so long I'd teach my feet to fly Say goodbye 
coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees, putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Well, I wish I had a river I could skate. 